Here. Vice President Rivera's excused today. Commissioner Ajami. Will be here soon. Soon. Commissioner Maxwell. Here. Commissioner Stacy. Here. We have a quorum. Okay, before calling the first item, I would like to announce that the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission acknowledges, <coughs> excuse me, that it owns and are stewards of the unceded lands located within the ethno-historic territory of the Moekwa Ohlone tribe and other familiar descendants of the historically, historic federally recognized Mission San Jose Verona Band of Alameda County. The SPUC also acknowledges that every citizen residing within the greater Bay Area has and continues to benefit from the use and occupation of the Moekwa Ohlone tribe's aboriginal lands since before and after the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission founding in 1932. <clears throat> Excuse me. It is vitally important that we not only recognize the history of the tribal lands on which we reside, but also we acknowledge and honor the fact that the Moekwa Ohlone people have established a working partnership with the SFPUC and are productive and flourishing members within the many greater San Francisco Bay Area communities today. So can we have the first item, please? Item number three is approval of the minutes of November 14th, 2023. So are there any corrections or comments on the minutes? Seeing none, um, can we uh, open this up to public comment, please? Item three. <clears throat> President Paulson, I don't see any individuals wanting to uh, provide comment. Okay, there, there's nobody um, on public comment. Is there anybody in the room that has, uh, would like to comment? Okay, seeing none, um, can we have a motion to approve the minutes? So moved. So there's a motion and second. Can we have a roll call on the approval of the minutes, please? President Paulson? Aye. Commissioner Maxwell? Aye. Commissioner Jami? Aye. Commissioner Stacy? Aye. You have four ayes? Aye. We now have four commissioners. Uh, welcome, Commissioner Jami. Um, we will now have um, Secretary, uh, Madam Secretary, can we open up now for general public comment, item four. Do any members of the public present to provide comment on matters that are within the commission's juris jurisdiction and not on today's agenda? Are there any members here for uh, public comment um, that are in person that are here for public comment? Seeing none, let's go to the next item. Thank you. Item five is report of the general manager. Thank you, Madam Secretary. Uh, item 5A is a green bond update from Nikolai Sklarov. Good afternoon, commissioners. It's a real pleasure to come to you today to speak about this topic which I believe was requested by Commissioner Ajami, and uh, look forward to providing an overview about green bonds. If I could have the slides, please. I'd, I'd hasten to add this is a, a big topic for a 10-minute uh, discussion, but it, we'll hit some quick highlights for you. I think what we'll try to focus on, uh, describe for everyone what green bonds and label bonds actually are, uh, talk a little bit about our green bond program, why we issue green bonds, talk a little bit about the green bond market, 
certification options, which we've discussed with you a little bit already, and then talk about what, what's potentially to come for our program. So let's begin with what are green bonds? I think um, they are bonds that help convey to the public what we are doing with the funds that we are borrowing. The Climate Bonds Initiative describes them as uh, standard bonds with a bonus green feature, um, which really gets to the heart of the matter. The, the bonds themselves, the, the commitments we make in terms of paying the bonds are the same. But what we're describing with a green bond is how we are spending those proceeds and we make certain commitments to the market in terms of the reporting that we'll do about those uh, commitments. The green bond market is actually still relatively young. The first green bonds were issued in 2007 and the marketplace has evolved very rapidly uh, since then. There are new players in the market, new products in the marketplace, and it has grown um, exponentially, particularly internationally. We in the U.S. public finance market represent a very tiny percentage, as you can see, of the global green bond market. As you may recall, the SFPUC issued its first green bonds in 2015. It was a relatively small transaction of about $30 million, but it was a very um, influential transaction as it was one of the first in the municipal uh, bond market. And um, I don't know if our public generally realizes how widely recognized the SFPUC is nationally um, for the leadership that my predecessors and, and all of you have shown in this, in this regard. What is interesting about that 2015 transaction is that it was self-certified. In other words, we were the ones, the SFPUC, were the ones who determined that they were green bonds. And in 2015, that was the way certification was typically done. The marketplace has evolved. Investors have expressed interest in seeing other parties verify that the bonds are green. And therefore, when the SFPUC moved forward with the WISIP and CISA programs, we obtained programmatic certification. So the entire program was certified by the Climate Bonds Initiative. And then those certifications are verified by Sustainalytics. So in other words, CBI tells the marketplace what we're gonna do, Sustainalytics confirms after we've spent the proceeds, and that represents what we believe is the platinum standard of uh, certification uh, to date. And we have now issued many uh, bonds with that. Um, so again, first bonds were self-certified and then we've continued to evolve. And I think as we close this presentation, we'll talk to you about ways in which we hope to continue to evolve. This is the point I was making a few moments ago that throughout this period since 2015, the SFPUC has shown leadership in green bonds, has been awarded, um, has been the first, for example, to do the CBI water um, criteria, uh, environmental finance 
um, celebrated our transactions twice. And of course, we've described to you already that this year, 2023, has been our largest issuance of green bonds to date. Uh, Standard & Poor's S&P Global Ratings uh, produces a very comprehensive report on labeled bonds. There are different labels. Uh, some people label their bonds sustainable bonds with green bonds. Um, and there there's, continues to be an evolution of the types of labels applied. But specifically for green bonds, the SFPC, before this record-setting year, was the third largest green bond issuer in the United States. And on the next page, you'll see we've added a lot of green bonds. The way to read this chart is that the pale colors are non-green bond. The, the darker uh, versions of those colors are the green bonds. So you'll see that not only did we issue more bonds than we have in any prior year, but we've also issued more green bonds in any prior year. As I have in the past, I would want to just emphasize that this includes, from our perspective, bonds that we're selling into the marketplace. So that includes both new borrowing as well as refinancing of uh, prior bonds. The green bond label fits very closely to our mission and is really a way of articulating what we are doing with the bonds, bond proceeds that we're borrowing from investors. When investors come to uh, the marketplace, we are seeing a distinct uh, preference for our green bonds. We very often sell green bonds and non-green bonds at the same time in the same maturity and we can watch the order flow coming in from the investors. And uh, almost universally, the, the orders will flow in first to the green bonds. Um, and sometimes we'll have green bonds several times oversubscribed with no orders for the non-green bonds. Now, of course, what we're doing when we're selling the bonds is we need to get all of our bonds sold. And so our underwriters work with the investors to move uh, them to, to the other transactions, the other series of bonds, so that we get all those sold. We don't see a pricing difference between those two, but we do believe we see a, not only more buyers for our bonds, but by extension, better pricing and demand for SFPUC bonds. And in the end, that's what we want to do throughout, it, including the uh, presentations that the general manager and other executive leaders make to the rating agencies uh, to get obtain uh, high ratings, the disclosure that we provide to investors. All of that is designed to try to attract uh, as many investors as possible, create as much demand as possible for our bonds. Of course, doing this does involve more work, more expense um, for us. Um, and as you can see, we have issued comprehensive green bond reports that articulate how we're spending those proceeds uh, for each of the three enterprises. And it, there's a lot of detail in there as to how those uh, projects align uh, with UN um, uh, uh, frameworks. The next uh, chart 
again, is from S&P Global Ratings and shows you this exponential growth in the green bond market. I would caution that here in the United States, um, as you'll see on subsequent pages, uh, there has been something of a, a backlash. Not everyone has embraced uh, addressing climate change the way uh, California and San Francisco have. Um, and there are actually states that, like Florida, that have banned uh, the use of green bonds by their local government entities. Um, but we think it, it not only articulates the values of our organization, it helps to inform the investors about how we're using our proceeds um, and hopefully creating the demand that will drive improved uh, costs. The challenge, of course, is uh, in addition to the costs that I alluded to, uh, we do have regulatory exposure. Everything we present into the marketplace um, is subject to the anti-fraud provisions of the securities laws. So uh, just as the preliminary official statement is subject to those, the information we provide about these bonds um, is as well. So um, I, I think the last thing I'd leave you with is this uh, discussion of the, the, the politics of this. Um, I think one of the concerns we have is that these are 30-year obligations that we're entering into and wanting to ensure that the, the compliance that we do from year to year um, can stay consistent. And with that, I'll be happy to take questions. So thanks so much for uh, putting this together. I know there's been great interest among the commissioners to make sure we have updates on this, you know, I won't, I won't say niche, but this very important uh, new um, venture that this, this, this uh, commission in particular has taken. So thank you so much for that. And I'm sure there's uh, many questions. And so um, let's start with Commissioner Ajami. I wanted to ask if we can uh, grant Mr. Skaloff to a little bit more time to finish his presentation because there's a lot more valuable content in there. Absolutely. I, okay. I, yeah, Thank please, you. Nikolai, don't that be, be uh, fantastic. keep continuing. I didn't notice you stopped because of the clock. I, <laughs> you were better than, than, than us. So please. If I could have uh, the, the remainder of the slides, please. Thank you. Oh. Um, let let me just realize. quickly Sorry. touch on this. Um, uh, there are, as I was starting to explain earlier, multiple players who have entered into this marketplace even since we first uh, were an early adopter. The bond rating agencies have, have entered the marketplace. Additional verifiers have entered, entered the, the marketplace. And um, uh, so th th there's increasing complexity uh, to that. This just gives you a sense as we were looking at our power bonds of the, the different options that we, we explored. Um, one of the key distinctions in the marketplace is between second party opinions and third party opinions, the, the way we do it, where we have first the climate bonds initiative um, and then Sustainalytics uh, coming in with their verification. Um, there are, these are 
each perfectly acceptable approaches. Our approach um, to date, um, which was adopted again uh, years ago, um, has been of particular appeal to international investors. Uh, the climate bonds initiative uh, uh, not only um, addresses the same four principles as the ICMA, but it also uh, uh, shows compliance with the Paris Agreement and the limitation of one and a half percent. The the point of all this is to simply articulate that the market has changed, and we have uh, begun the process, as we've discussed in conjunction with the power bonds, where we made the recommendation not to proceed with a self-certification and bring the power enterprise to the same level of uh, diligence as the other two enterprises. But it's also an opportunity not simply to add to the power, but to reevaluate all of our providers, uh, given how much the marketplace has changed. So I want to be careful how much I, I say in advance of an RFP, but uh, we do have a request for proposals in preparation, and we would expect to issue that working with our contract administration uh, uh, bureau uh, in the spring. And with that, I'm happy to conclude. Commissioner Jami, I think you had a question follow-up first, even though, and then uh, Commissioner Stacy afterwards. So first of all, I want to say I really, really do appreciate you giving this presentation. Um, uh, you know, I, this, as you know, is a very close interest of mine. Um, just a little bit of a history, when I uh, was running my program at Stanford, we, one of the areas that we focused on was environmental finance, and we did feature that first green bond that uh, SFPUC um, um, put out just because it was the brand new one, and it was very interesting to see a utility taking that on. So, um, so it is exciting to sit here and see the history and what has happened since then. Um, two questions I have for you. One is, I actually personally had not realized how small U.S. market is. So I'm wondering if you think there is a, there, there are a couple of things. One is, are there concerns when we are talking about the backlash, you know, all the issues around ESG, the pushback on BlackRock and some of the other entities that do issue some of these um, um, investment uh, uh, strategies out there? Do you think there is a chance that this backlash would impact our bonds? I'm assuming it might be positive since there are not as many of them out there, but I'm wondering are there also negative sides that we are not actually anticipating and should we think about that? It's, it's a very interesting question because there is a, a certain tension. On the one hand, just stepping back, the way this market developed internationally was that climate activists went to the investors and said, look, you can get these bonds without giving up any yield, but express um, support for, for climate. Um, the promise to those of us in the issuer community has been, if only you issue enough of these bonds and create a marketplace, there'll be more demand and you'll get a pricing benefit. And those 
those two promises are continuing to collide. So I think, uh, candidly, for for many um, issuers across the country who who may not share the values of the commission and, and the city and county of San Francisco, um, for them it becomes a transactional decision of, well, if, if I'm not going to get a substantial pricing benefit and I have these real costs, why should I undertake it? Um, I think in addition to that, um, this this environment that we're in, and, and it's, it's reached a crescendo here in 2023. The House of Representatives had hearings over the summer. Um, on the one hand, you've got political forces who are pushing back at what they call a woke agenda and think that there's an intrusion in the financial markets. On the other side, there is also a regulatory aspect. And the SEC has taken actions this year about greenwashing. And so as we have these discussions with underwriters, we have to be very careful about how we are representing uh, what we're doing. And, and it's a delicate balance. So uh, there is that regulatory risk. We're not directly regulated. We're subject to the anti-fraud provisions but those who underwrite our bonds are subject to that regulation. And does that mean that if people, like, let's say in 10 years, you know, we realize we want to have more stringent rules around how these bonds are issued or how they're evaluated, would that have impact, retrospective impact on our existing issued bonds or that would be forward-looking, sort of like looking um, at future bonds? I, I think we can make representations about bonds in the future. The, the fact that we, for example, s certify power bonds going forward doesn't mean we'll have to go back and certify in the, pa the, the bonds we've issued in the, okay. in the past. It is interesting that there is also an evolution. You know, at first, this marketplace was you got a specific bond transaction certified. The SFPUC took advantage of this programmatic approach. We took advantage of getting WISIP uh, certified, getting CISIP uh, certified. There is now another evolution where you have a choice of certifying the bonds or certifying the borrower um, and, and all the, the stringency that may entail. We would expect that as part of our RFP responses, we may hear uh, recommendations about both of those. Thank you. This was fantastic. Great. Thanks. And we'll expect, of course, that you give us updates on those particular political things that might happen. And before I turn it over to the next commissioner, I'd just like to comment that, you know, when, when one is dealing with the markets, especially with what you just highlighted very Shortly in your in your um, in the slide where you're talking about the House Republicans and people that are just doing scare tactics about you know your your heating is going to go up and people are going to lose jobs and you know all those scare tactics, there are you know obviously what you're saying there are pieces where you know people get rid of jobs and you know and 
people make money off of that, you know, on on Wall Street and on markets and that kind of stuff. So there is that dynamic. But, you know, here in San Francisco, we have, you know, principles which you have illustrated so well with, you know, you know, not only doing the right bonds, but doing it because of the right reasons. And that is recognizing the green economy is, you know, is here and we're uh, participating at least a little bit early in it. So just a comment along those lines. So I do expect, and I think we all will expect updates if we think that something is going south for whatever reasons, whether or not it's just because of political pressure or just some natural markets are driving things crazy. Commissioner uh, uh, Stacy. Thank you. And ditto what the president just said. And thank you for the presentation. I'm really glad that the PUC has been a leader in the green bond market. I think it speaks well for our <coughs> mission statement and the kind of work that we try to do. I had a couple of questions. I think you may have answered um, two of them. But I wonder if you have any sense of the timing and the process to have the power bonds certified. Is, uh, have, have you been apprised of or involved in that process? Do you have an idea of how long it might take? Yes. Um, uh -huh. So the the RFP is is being drafted, um, and we work with our uh, contracts administration bureau. They've provided estimates that would would have me assuming that we are going to issue that in the spring uh, with an award uh, late in the year. Thank you. And I, I think you've answered this question I had about the political backlash. It seems as though there may be some legitimate criticism of some greenwashing that may be going on, but it otherwise sounds as if it may be um, sort of another policy move to deny climate change. Um, were there any other sort of legitimate criticisms that you thought we could address? It seems to me that the certification process would address this kind of greenwashing idea, that that's the purpose of it, is that an outside entity confirms that it's real. You know, I think it's, I want to be careful what I say, but I think it's fair to say that there was a novelty to green bonds and some people embraced it without the same level of diligence that the PUC did and the same thought. So because there are some people who are self-certifying, there may not be the same rigor to, to those. Um, yeah. Maybe I'll leave it at that. Okay, thank you. And um, my last question, <clears throat> I think you've mostly answered. I was wondering, there are not really any current financial advantages for the PUC on issuing green bonds other than that we have a lot of interested buyers. Um, you indicated, I think in one of your slides and in just uh, a response that there has been talk of potential interest rate benefits, but the market may not be big enough to justify those is what I think you just said. I, I want to be very careful um, with, with this. The what I, I would love to be able to say is, look, our green bond prices 20, benef 20 basis points lower than our non-green bond. And, and we can't say that. Yeah. Um, and that's because the fundamental security is the same. And so there are 
many of the investors just as willing to take this bond if they can get the same yield. So our, our job is to figure out how do we leverage this to get the best price on both of these. Um, it's very hard to, to say, okay, our bond versus somebody else's bond because the average life is different, the credit rating is different, but we believe that based on the greater demand, we get the best pricing possible. And that's, that's always our objective, to get as many buyers at the table as possible. And there is, um, there is no advantage to the investors either, is that? Yes, there, there is. There and, is the and this is something that I've, I've challenged some of our investor friends about. I've, I was on a uh, panel this spring uh, with one of the investors from Nuveen, and he was asked by an audience member, well, why do you buy green bonds? if there isn't a, a pricing uh, difference. Um, and he, he said, if there is a pricing difference in the future, I want to capture it. Of course, we want to capture it on the day we sell the bonds. Sure. Um, and again, it's that, that fundamental tension in terms of the promises to the investors, which was you won't have to give up yield to participate in this market, and the promise that we've held out that we might have a pricing benefit. Thank you. Commissioner Maxwell. Thank you. <clears throat> Again, I, I always um, look forward to your presentations. Thank um, you, know, you, you said that the bonds are, our bonds, our green bonds are popular. Um, even though you just mentioned that there's no real difference. So what do you think that is? What do you think the reason is? Do you think that maybe they're telling those naysayers that they're wrong? Do you think it's political as well? Well, I, th I think while the, the municipal bond market in the United States has had difficulty of demonstrating a compelling difference, I think globally that difference is very compelling. And part of that is um, that you know, we, we are, first of all, a small part of the marketplace. Overseas investors, particularly European investors, um, and uh, other Asian investors have a strong desire uh, for, the, for the green bonds. I think it's also uh, fair to suggest that there are very fundamental generational differences, and young investors in particular want to know not just that they're um, uh, getting a good yield, but that they're doing uh, good deeds. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then, um you said that it costs more, basically, to issue green bonds. So if it costs more um, to issue green bonds, do we do it because it feels good? Do we do it because in the long run we feel that it's going to pay off? A lot of the things that we do in the PUC cost more, but we feel like it's important, and this obviously is one of them. The, the costs that, that I was alluding to are those verifiers, their, their fees that we're paying. Those are really de minimis in the, in the context of a multi-billion dollar capital program. Uh, but there's also the, the time, uh, which we shouldn't uh, dismiss lightly, of, of staff uh, in preparing these detailed reports as, as well. But I think in terms of the benefit, again, as in terms of articulating our mission and 
driving demand for our bonds. That's why we do it. And our values. Yeah. All right, great. Thank you. Thank you. Commissioner Adrami? Maybe um, this can be a comment or a question, which goes back to what you said, but also this, in a way, help us track how we are achieving some of those um, goals and objectives, right? Because in a way, you're, you have to track it in a different way beyond I, gen I built this or I built that, right? So it might incur some cost, but it might actually benefit us in a way of uh, somebody else evaluating how you're doing things, too. I see. Um, just, you, you also mentioned about certification. So would there be a problem for us to certify ourselves, I mean, the borrower to be certified as well as the bonds? Is that what you're saying is what we're thinking? Well, or? We, we have done that in the past for the power enterprise. There are many assurers who still do that, but the market has shifted based on the demand from investors that the investors are saying, they would like to see someone else making that well, decision. I understand. So we would have a third party certify the borrower, that would be us, as well as our bonds? Oh. So both? That, that, that is a potential new iteration of the, the model. Okay. Uh, and we'll see when we get our, our RFP responses um, how that compares. Thank you. Can I ask a follow-up on that? Um, so does that mean that if they certify us as a green um, institution, I think, or utility, does that mean then, then we do not need to certify every individual bond, or does that mean that we have to do still both? It's, it's, it's an issuer uh, certification. Um, okay. Which means that every bond that we issue after that will fall under that category without being evaluated? Uh, no, it would just it would be it would speak to what we're doing as an okay, organization. Okay, as a value system. Okay, yeah. so this basically says we are a green bond issuer, and then every bond that we have still needs to go through the certification process, which is important. I'm just actually want to make sure that hap that still happens. Yeah, it's okay. it's it's even s separate from the bonds. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Okay, are there any other commissioners? Okay, we, I guess we, this item itself is open to public comment, correct? Thank you, commissioners. So we will open this to public comment, Madam Secretary. Do we have any members of the public present to provide comment on item number 5A? Seeing none, um, we will move on in the general manager's report. Uh, item 5B is a quarterly audit and performance review report uh, from Irella Blackwood. Good afternoon, Commissioners. My name is Irella Blackwood, and I'm the SFPUC Audit Director. I am here today to present to you all the first quarter of the Audit Bureau's quarterly audit performance review report. May I please have the slides? As of September 30th, 2023, 10 audits, or 33% of this year's planned portfolio, have been completed. 
An additional third of the planned audits were in progress at the end of the first quarter, and the remaining 10 are scheduled to commence in the current quarter or later this fiscal year. Of the completed audits, about seven were financial audits, two were performance audits, and one was from the Revenue Bond Oversight Committee. At this time, there are 12 additional financial audits either in progress or scheduled to commence this quarter. In addition, six additional performance audits, one revenue bond oversight committee audit, and one revenue lease audit are scheduled to begin this year. Here are some of the details of the 10 audits that were completed in the first quarter. In July, the controller's office issued a post audit for the calendar year 2022, along with the cybersecurity maturity assessment for the prior fiscal year followed by a Chapter 14 BLBE Local Business um, Enterprise Compliance Audit in August. In August, Phase 2 of the Revenue Bond Programs Audit was issued by the Revenue Bond Oversight Commission. In September, the Wholesale Revenue Requirement Statement of Changes in Balancing Account for Fiscal Year 2021 was completed, followed by the issuance of our annual warehouse inventory counts, which we'll be describing in further detail. So as mentioned earlier, the SFPUC warehouse had their physical counts of inventory for the first quarter. Crow Limited Liability Public Accounting Firm completed the counts. They conducted site visits of five bureaus with the objective to ensure accurate count and valuation of inventory maintained at those bureaus. The results showed some variances between physical inventory counts and our SFPUC maximal uh, electronic records. In summary, these variances were due to data entry errors, mislabeled items, software hardware issues with the field tracking system, and some lack of inventory organization in some areas. So what were the details of these variances? Out of $13,114,958 worth of inventory items across five bureaus, $237,689 varied from our records, which is about 1.81%. Um, the, the overall, it is true that some bureaus are, are better, have better accurate records than other bureaus, um, but the overall and individual division variances generally follow a trend of improvement when you look at the, the history of improvement over the last four years. Um, there is additional room for improvement, and the Audit Bureau is di directly following up with divisions and individually helping them to improve their inventory management controls. So the, the um, Audit Bureau actively monitors open recommendations throughout the agency, as you all know, to ensure that they are addressed and implemented according to their respective deadlines. As of September 30th, 2023, recommendations remain open across two audits, 15 stemming from the Sewer System Improvement Program Management Contract Audit, and an additional eight from the Revenue Lease Audit of Crystal Springs Golf Partners. Moving forward, we anticipate the completion of a total of six audits during the second quarter of the fiscal year. Those audits include four of the audited financial statements for water, wastewater, Hetch Hetchy, water, power, the interconnection security agreement for the fiscal year 2022-2023, and the chapter six delegated authority audit and the Solus procurement public integrity assessment.
We also anticipate the kickoff of a total of three audits this quarter, namely phase three of the revenue bond programs audit, the annual comprehensive financial report, and the popular annual financial report. Thank you for your time, and I'm available for any questions. Thank you. Thank um, Commissioners, questions? Commissioner Maxwell. Thank you. I was wondering, is there an industry norm for like our warehouse, um, and how are we in that? That's a good question. I was thinking about that too. I don't have the details on the industry norm, but I'm happy to do some research and get back to you in writing. Good. I mean, it seems without looking into it, but that's pretty good. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it yeah. seems 98%. to me that we're doing... Yeah, all right, thank you. Yes, thank you. Commissioner Stacy. I um, just had a question on the um, revenue bond programs audit. Yes. Your report notes that um, we partial, the PUC partially concurred with one of the recommendations and did not concur with two. Could you give me a little more detail on that non-concurrence? Yes, so uh, we always strive to have full concurrence of all of our recommendations. I think in general, the tone at the PUC, we're very open to improvement, we're open to recommendations. Um, we had some just subtle dis disagreements on um, some of the standards that the auditor was using uh, for the Revenue Bond Oversight Committee, and we kind of tried to have some agreement uh, with those particular recommendations, but we did not come to a full conclusion. And so um, we discussed it internally with all of the, the, the relevant stakeholders, and we weren't able to, to have a complete agreement in those areas. So it was about the standards that were being applied. Um, it just came down to whether or not their interpretation of some of the internal controls at that time were actually um, applicable and so we, the full report is available and happy to talk more about that with you. Thank you. Okay, any other questions or comments from commissioners? Can I make a quick comment? Uh, I think on that too, I think this issue was also reported in our last, um, last report as well. And I think that going back to the question on industry standards, I think as you're presenting these findings, it would be very valuable to know what is the industry standard for everything that we are going, we, we do audit on, right? So are we here, are we, but like benchmarking ourselves against other would be very valuable. And I okay. think something like that would be very useful on, on every front. Okay, will do, thank you. The comments, commissioners? Okay, let's open it up to the uh, general public, please. Madam Secretary. Do we have any members of the public present provide comment on item 5B? Okay, seeing none. Um, item C. Uh, that concludes my report, Mr. President. Are there any other announcements in item C? Uh, no. Okay, seeing none, then let's go to the next item. Item is item six, your consent calendar. Okay, um, is there anything on the consent calendar that anybody would like to um, pull or have questions on, in order to have questions on? Okay, well, seeing none, um, then the consent out calendar, I guess we will open up to public comment. Do we have any members of the public present to provide comment on item number six? 
see none. Okay, seeing none. So is there a motion and second um, to approve the consent calendar? I'll move. Second. So it's been moved and second. Can we have a roll call, Madam Secretary, please? President Paulson? Aye. Commissioner Maxwell? Aye. Commissioner Jami? Aye. Commissioner Stacy? Aye. You have five ayes. Okay, thank you. Um, so the next two items, um, item seven and item eight, I'm gonna call those up together. Um, we will have separate votes on those, but um, item seven, can we read item seven, please? Item seven, approve the Approve the amended and updated water enterprise level of service goals and objectives, which were originally approved in, 20, in 2008 as part of the Water System Improvement Program Environmental Impact Report. And item number eight, approve power enterprise level of service goals and objectives. Okay, so this is um, some important benchmarks for us. And uh, who do we have? Good afternoon. Barbara Hale, Assistant General Manager for Power. I'll go ahead and begin our presentation. If we could have the slides, please. And then I'll turn the uh, podium over to uh, AGM Ritchie, who will take care of the water levels of service. Uh, so let's see. Um, I think I'd, what I'd like to do is sort of start with some level setting uh, and then get into the topics and terms uh, that we are using and um, what power's particular levels of service are. So levels of service generally are actions or standards that we strive as an organization to meet or to manage, right? They're intended to satisfy our customer expectations and our mission as an organization. In 2020, the SFPUC's strategic plan established quantifiable levels of service goals by enterprise as a specific goal within that plan. And the levels of service goal setting is really, um, from our perspective, an important activity for ensuring accountability among our staff and to our ratepayers, transparency in our work, strategic prioritization, and organizational learning. Thank you. So moving then to the specifics of Powers Levels of Service. This is the first time that Powers Levels of Service have been brought to the Commission for consideration. We established them in 2020 and have been operating with them as a, as a performance metric since. They're made up of five broad goals and 19 specific um, objectives within each of those goal areas. We have nearly 100 detailed performance metrics then that are kind of nested below that. And I'm gonna present the goals and objectives, the, the five and the 19. I will not <coughs> present all of the um, uh, performance metrics. I will just present some examples of that so you can see how they are captured in, in more detail, how the goals and objectives are captured in more detail uh, through those performance metrics. The goals, objectives, and performance metrics that we use in power are then incorporated by power staff into our annual planning process. The five goals emphasize reliable and clean energy, safe and reliable programs, effective customer service, and operational excellence and sustainability. They follow functional services that we provide, supply, transmission, distribution, programs, administration, and they align with our budget and uh, cost centers. 
So diving into the goals and objectives themselves. First, power supply, providing reliable clean energy at competitive prices in support of citywide climate goals. That's the broad power supply goal. Then you see below it some of the, objecti the objectives assigned to power supply. Cost competitive, GHG free and reliable, excuse me, renewable power to support or exceed the city's objectives. Sufficient capacity, energy supply and flexibility to serve all of our existing and future customers load. And reducing the carbon footprint of electricity supply so through our energy efficiency, local renewable generation and fuel switching programs. Next you see power transmission. And under that uh, broad goal, we've identified providing cost-effective and reliable transmission services. The objective, to strategically invest in transmission infrastructure and services to increase the reliability of our electric services. So for example, um, this broad goal and objective resulted in our proposing a transmission project for construction here in San Francisco. It was proposed and approved in a budget. In prior years, it's in construction and, and at this time. So that just gives you a little sense of how it can come to life in a budget process. For power distribution, it's providing cost-effective and reliable distribution services. We have a number of um, sub-objectives here. Reliable distribution th services through interconnection with the grid, deploying city-owned infrastructure in development and redevelopment areas that are poised for growth, effectively managing all the assets by performing regular asset inventories, preventive inspections, monitoring and maintenance, and repair and replacement work, minimizing the frequency and duration of unplanned outages on the SFPUC controlled distribution system, and preparing for the acquisition of PG&E's distribution assets in San Francisco. Our city program's object, uh, goal is to maintain safe and reliable streetlights and offer valuable customer programs. So here our objectives are to maintain the streetlights and implement upgrades and new projects as requested, responding promptly to streetlight outages and emergencies, incentivizing customers to invest in energy efficiency, um, decarbonization, other measures that support local clean energy development and job creation. And then our final um, goal area is power administration where we are focused on enhancing customer and user satisfaction through effective customer service and achieving operational excellence and sustainability. So objectives here, customer service, rates, equity, outreach, planning, regulatory compliance, and workforce. These are key areas for us in providing for a satisfied uh, customer experience. It's also where we capture our interest in fostering equity and support, not just for our workforce, but also for the customers that we serve. Our workforce is a key impo uh, important part of our success. We, we strive to attract, develop, and retain a safe, healthy, productive, diverse, and well-equipped workforce. And you can, you can imagine how these different key words in these objectives can influence the budget requests we make um, you know, how we, how we spend our day, how we operationalize the, um, the activities underneath all of these goals and objectives. And that brings me to uh, an example of performance metrics. This is how these goals and objectives are factored uh, 
into our performance metrics measured and reported annually, informing our annual plans, our budget proposals, performance plans for responsible staff, really influencing our, our daily operations. So this example of key performance indicators falls under our power distribution goal. You see the objective listed at the top of the table. Uh, then moving across the table left to right, there's two example key performance indicators or metrics. There's a target, that's the value to be achieved to meet the objective. The data source is identified for that KPI, for that key performance indicator. There's a budget category that it relates to, so we can um, operationalize this and understand how a particular goal, objective, and KPI are, um, can be addressed in a through the budget process. And then the responsible management team. So we have comparable detail for each of our almost 100 performance metrics. That data is collected and internally reported to inform our annual plans, budget, and performance plans for our staff. We approach this process as, you know, from an attitude of, and trying to set a culture that it is better to set the right target and not meet it than to not set a target, right? Um, that if we don't meet the target, we're learning. We're not, we're not, it's not intended to be punitive to staff, but intended to be a thought process that results in giving us data on which we can make informed decisions. Um, we're all working collaboratively to meet the targets, it's, and uh, we recognize in this process that there are always going to be elements that are outside our control that cause us to meet the target. What we want to focus on are those that are within our control and decide how that should influence our day-to-day our, um, -day operations and our planning and our budget requests. So uh, with that, um, I'll conclude my part of the presentation. I'm happy to take any uh, questions you may have about the power levels of service and our process and uh, then I'll turn it over to AGM Ritchie. Do we want some questions before we move to Mr. Ritchie? Do I see it that way? Yes. Okay, okay, yeah. Commissioner Maxwell. No, adjourn me first. Can you go first? Okay. Um, thank you so much for that presentation. Yeah. I think one, I, I appreciate you including the performance measures in here. Um, I think a um, couple of things. I, when we were having discussions around budget uh, strategy, mm -hmm. um, I brought this up too, which is I think we need to think about climate impacts and um, and equity and uh, affordability as sort of two two sort of overarching goals that we have, right? Mm -hmm. And then everything else sort of falls under those categories. And one thing I, I would say is yes, we do have climate goals, and often those climate goals are very much um, sort of centered around emission reduction. But we are going to have vulnerabilities to climate change. We are going to have we are going to have issues that we have to deal with related to that. We need to build resilience. I think later in the in the agenda we do have um, we do have an item on power um, which actually focuses on what happens if it's a dry year and a wet year and a you know normal year and how are we going to respond to all that and what's that what's our power mix, and I think that actually needs to be very much set. like everything we do needs to be centered around climate resilience beyond just 
there are goals, we are meeting those goals. So I just want to put this out there because I think it's important to uh, differentiate between overarching goals versus individual uh, goals that can be met at, on their own, under their own sort of uh, banner. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hope that's that. No, that, that's helpful. I, if 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 I may comment yeah. as, as well, I, I think part of what I think I'd like us to do as a as an institution is not feel like you know climate and adaptation and mitigation are you know a particular team's job. Yes. But rather, all of our work should be imbued with that, right? So I, I think I think what I just expressed and seeing you you nod your head. Uh, I'm expressing it as being sort of like everywhere. Yes. You d- you express it as being like overarching, but, but I think we're saying thing. the same thing. Yes, you're saying <laughs> okay. exactly the same thing. And I think I'm not saying we need to put the word climate more often in here, mm-hmm. but we actually have to do the practice of trying to identify our vulnerabilities and sort of right. build solutions or at, or put together actions that are responding to those mm-hmm. overarching goals or embedded strategy. And I do know... Yeah. Uh, very similar to climate bonds, um, uh, we have had a climate team. We're a very active one for a long time, but sometimes I feel like they are very much their own, sort of on their own, doing mm-hmm. their own thing. And there's not enough. Um, I'm sure there's. I mean, I don't know if the inter yeah. interworking of the or everything that happens on a daily basis. But to your point, I think that needs to be disp- spread out across the board. And one last thing I would say is. And then that also goes back to our um, access to finance, access to mm-hmm. um, uh, you know money that is focused on climate issues. A lot of that, I mean, it's not just like being able to va- evaluate our vulnerability. It also can open a different door for us by giving us a chance to access different kind of resources versus what's available to us right now. Yeah, that's a strong point. It, Thank you. Uh, if I might. Yes, uh, uh, Mr. President. Just, uh, I agree with you, uh, Commissioner Jami, and just as a as a as a point of um, clarification, it it is a philosophy of, of the PUC at every level in 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 all the work that we do. And I think that um, Assistant General Manager Hale um, expressed it well about how we view the entirety of our work, um, whether it be in terms of what we're doing out at Ocean Beach, what we're working collaboratively with the city on on resilience when it comes to work on the waterfront. You alluded a little bit to the work done by David Bihar, who's housed in, in um, uh, uh, AGM Ritchie's operation. Uh, what we do on climate resilience is a core of everything that we do, and not just what we do on the projects we, that we have here, but in terms of international leadership, um, having started the Water Utility Climate Alliance and the like, we take that very seriously uh, throughout the organization, and it is a focal point. So I very much appreciate um, your um, the sentiment, and rest assured that it is something that we take seriously, and we try and have imbued in all the work that we do. And we we we're aware of it, and but it never hurts to be reminded. Right, and, and which the, which has been done. Do you have another comment? Yeah, one, one last thing to uh, both of you is, um, I think you're absolutely right. We have done a lot of work. I think one other area that climate change or climate vulnerability and resilience sort of come into play is the intersection of different enterprises we have, right? So how can we use that opportunity as a way of investing? And I know, again, we have had this conversation. You guys do try to take advantage of those opportunities, but a lot of these 
funding and financing opportunities that come down the, down the pipe focuses on those sort of synergies. So, you know. You're um, absolutely right. Yep. And I hear people, sounds like everybody is reinforcing each other on the things that is the position of the, of the department. Um, Commissioner Maxwell. Thank you. I, I agree with you. However, I want to see it. I, I, it needs to be called that. You called out um, equity. You called out all of those things. And certainly, we are number one. I mean, I read some of the things that we're doing that I didn't even know about. So we definitely are. But we need to talk about it more. I guess I'd like to see it more. The things that we are doing are just, are just beyond, you know, what you would even, you say, well, maybe they could do. But we go beyond that. So I'd like to see it. I would like to see in, in our objectives spelled out more. I think it's important. If that's all I'm looking at and you have bullet points, why shouldn't it be a bullet point? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and even in, with the water, it's the same thing. I mean, it's mentioned casually. But this should be, this is, this is what drives us. I mean, it really does. Our environmental, our stewardship of the environment drives us a lot. And I think we need to say it, and I want to see it. I'd like to see it spelled out as an objective. These are our goals, and this is what we do to achieve them. We give this, we do that, you know. And I think it's important that we say it, because just doing it is one thing. Unfortunately, in these days and times, you have to say what you do, you know. I feel pretty, you got to say it, you know. So (laughs) I I, I think it's, it's important for us to do that. Okay, before we, thank you. And so mm-hmm. before we go to uh, Mr. Ritchie, I would like to say that I think that, you know, we do have this stuff documented, especially if we're talking about it. So I'm, I am, as, as the chair, just a little bit um, um, confused about, you know, what we're not doing, we're not seeing here, if it's a different billboard or something. So I, I would like to talk, you know, more about that sometime offline because um, I, I don't, I'm missing something a little bit. Um, it's, we're, we're doing a lot of good stuff. So that being said, um, any other comments? Um, Mr. Ritchie. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Commissioner Steve Ritchie, Assistant General Manager for Water. Uh, we'll now turn to the water levels of service goals and objectives. Um, these are, are a little different from power because these were originally developed in 2008 as part of the Water System Improvement Program and they really focused on design and construction of regional water system improvements. Uh, they, were, they were actually a huge step forward, I believe, at that time for the PUC and the water enterprise to make sure it was very clear what we were trying to accomplish with the water system improvement program. Uh, but we recognized that they didn't really cover all of what we do. So we've been working on revisions uh, with our management team in water and on down through the staff over a series of years to address operations and maintenance, local water system issues, uh, and sustainability issues such as workforce and community support. Uh, The 2023 amended and revised goals and objectives are intended to inform the budget process and prioritization, Uh, but one of the things to note here is kind of similar to what Barbara said. Some of the objectives are currently very achievable, but some of them are are aspirational as well. Uh, We do need to continue to stretch ourselves at all times. The slide shows basically what the 2008 water enterprise level of service goals were. It does not include the objectives because I could go into the objectives here and more things in this 
presentation would go on for an hour, and I, there's not enough time for that. Um, but there were uh, six uh, original uh, water service level of goals, a level of service goals for water quality, seismic reliability, delivery reliability, water supply, sustainability, and cost effectiveness. Uh, and they were in various degrees of detail, uh, but they really emphasized design and construction in the regional water system. So as you look at 2023, we've revised them. So now we have drinking water quality, regional seismic reliability, regional delivery reliability, in-city seismic reliability, in-city delivery reliability, water supply, environmental stewardship, and sustainability, all as important issues for us to deal with. Uh, in the next few slides, uh, I'm going to cover what the objectives are for each of these, uh, but I will only hit the highlights in there. The text is all here, and also just for the record to make sure it's clear, uh, in your agenda package is a side-by-side -side comparison of the 2023 and 2008 uh, goals and objectives uh, for, you know, for anybody's reference. Uh, on drinking water quality, uh, these are largely the same as they were originally in 2008, uh, but the first words, operate and maintain, are an you know, addition there that make it very clear that we have to maintain our water quality over time. We can't just build something and make sure it works and just walk away. You know, life doesn't work that way. Uh, and then another important uh, addition here down at the bottom is responding to customer service inquiries within two business hours. This one's pretty specific, but this is a very important thing. Our customers need to know that we are hearing them when they have complaints and we're reacting and taking action on those. Uh, on regional seismic reliability, again, this is very similar to what was in the original set, uh, but in that first one, it's not just design and construct. Uh, but also regularly evaluate the ability of the system to meet current seismic standards. Uh, if you work in the engineering world, you know that we're learning more about seismicity all the time and the risks are changing over time and we need to be on top of those and not just sit on the laurels with what we built once upon a time. Um, on regional delivery reliability, uh, this one was a very interesting one to work with uh, because it got into some very interesting issues about our capability. Uh, this first page here are many of the things that were in the original set, but in that first objective, uh, it talks about uh, supporting the proper operation of the water system and proper operation of power facilities that are essential to the operation of the water system. There are certain parts of the power system that we have to have uh, working to provide water to people. Uh, our Kirkwood and Moccasin penstocks, our Kirkwood and Moccasin powerhouses, uh, and certain switchyards and transmission lines all have to work for water to be able to be delivered. So it's, it can't be ignored. It can't just be the water system. It's got to be thinking about the power system as well. And then on the next uh, is uh, where we you know, made some changes in particular. It talked about being able to deliver 300 million gallons per day. Uh, and we wanted to make sure that was clearer because uh, we cannot deliver 300 million gallons a day every day of the year. Uh, so that's not what we can do. But this is much clearer on what we can do and is really important for the staff to know that we're recognizing you know, there are limitations with what we have. We may improve in the future, uh, but it's a peak demand of 300 million gallons per day, and routinely we can up achieve up to 265 million gallons per day, uh, even if we have a shutdown of uh, one or two facilities. Uh, and then we have a very specific call out there 
for when we take the Hetch Hetchy supply offline. We're getting ready to do that now as part of one of the shutdowns. When we take that supply offline, which is 85% of our supply, that limits our capabilities. So we make the best use of all the things we have. And we've tried to articulate that here more clearly than we ever have before anyplace else. So it's an understanding of what our system can do uh, and where the challenges are. Um, the next to last one is operate on country and Bay Area water reservoirs to optimize water supply, comply with environmental regulations while mindful of downstream conditions. And that, that last phrase, uh, we very carefully avoided using the words flood control. We are not a flood control agency, but at the same time, we have to manage our facilities responsibly so we don't exacerbate somebody else's problem. So saying that out loud, this is the first time we're saying that out loud. Uh, and then again, providing our wholesale customers with information so that they can operate their, their systems uh, is a very important part of uh, what we need to do. On the in-city front, these are brand new. Uh, it took a lot of work to put these together, and I think uh, I've, I've used recently with people talking about these as evolutionary goals and objectives. These will change over time uh, as we learn more and develop more capability and understanding of how our system is changing for ourselves. Uh, but basically, uh, in terms of storage, maintaining seismically reliable potable water storage so that we can provide the minimum uh, pressure that's required in our, our drinking water system. We need to be able to provide that so that people can have safe water. Uh, fire suppression, this one is a little bit more detailed around the emergency firefighting water system. That too is evolving over time and uh, that, that's something that uh, we will be bringing to the commission as part of the uh, budget process. Uh, an interesting one here is water supply restoration. This takes a look at our system and says, okay, what can we do in the first 24 hours, the first 72 hours, the first week, and the first 90 days, uh, starting to restore service after a major earthquake? It's different in the city than it is regionally where you can build a few big pipelines and they take care of you. Here, with the grid that we have, it's vulnerable, so you just have to recognize there will be breaks, uh, and it will happen, and it's going to be a gradual recovery that will take some period of time. Uh, and this is where we try to lay out very particular progression of how we do. Certainly, ultimately, we want to make sure these things happen as fast as possible, uh, but this is what we think we can uh, really uh, provide. Um, on in-city delivery reliability, uh, being able to provide uh, a couple of storage for a couple of days of winter demand, plus fire, fire suppression uh, flows uh, within each of our uh, pressure zones throughout the system. Uh, again, maintaining that 20 PSI pressure. Uh, but down at the bottom, the last two are, you know, how do we maintain deliveries on a routine basis? So this basically says less than 1% of service connections are without water for up to four hours as a result of an unplanned outage. Unplanned outage means main break. Uh, so that's what we, this is our measure for main breaks to make sure that it's a small number and that service is restored fairly quickly. Uh, and then the companion to that, about a half a percent of service connections are without water for eight hours or longer. Uh, so again, keeping those numbers down. If we can meet these goals, we feel like we're doing a pretty good job. We will always be striving to improve on them, uh, make sure people stay in water wherever possible. On the water supply front, 
the first two goals, uh, meeting an average annual water demand of 265 million gallons per day, uh, and then drought never having more than 20% system-wide reduction uh, during system droughts. Uh, those are the same basically as they were in the 2008 uh, uh, goals and objectives. Uh, and then further down, maintaining retail residential potable water use below 45 gallons per person per day, that's moving down. It's, it may not be where we ultimately end up, uh, but it, that number is getting less as we go over time and we expect it to drop down some more. Uh, and then making sure we're delivering recycled water to Rec and Park for as much irrigation as we can in their facilities. Um, environmental stewardship. Uh, this is one in the original. It was just the title sustainability and it was kind of, it was, it was a very short one, you know, comply with environmental laws. Well, that was a good thing, but that's just a start. We need to make sure that we manage our watersheds and right-of-way lands to protect and restore native resources, protecting cultural resources, and minimizing wildfire risk. We need a, a responsibility to do that. Uh, and then manage and operate all, operate all our assets consistent with the water enterprise environmental stewardship policy that was uh, adopted in 2006. It's environmental philosophy about how we uh, operate things, and that was important to capture here. Uh, and then lastly, uh, Barbara had administration. Uh, I'm more in the sustainability as you know, the, the catch-all of many things that really are about the fabric of how we operate. Uh, so energy utilization, minimizing our carbon footprint and maintaining gravity uh, as the key factor of it. Continually evaluating and planning for all the changes we see, environmental, fiscal, and social, that influence how we can meet these levels of service. Uh, security is something that we have to worry about in all of our facilities. Uh, workforce support, you know, is language very similar to what tar Barbara talked about. Uh, a a, a well-valued workforce and well-supported workforce is critical to making sure that we can deliver here. Uh, and then lastly, uh, being uh, providing for community support, being mindful and responsible uh, to our communities, uh, having public outreach, educational opportunities, uh, and dealing more with issues relative to tribes and California Native Americans is going to be an important part of our future. Uh, and the last there is our asset management policy and making sure that we are properly uh, managing our assets so that we can continue to deliver supplies regardless of what the future holds. Uh, we need to be able to deliver water uh, to customers in a responsible way today, tomorrow, a year from now, 20 years from now, 50 years from now. You know, it's, it's a lifetime commitment on our part. And I'd be happy to answer any questions. Great, thanks, thanks a lot, uh, Mr. Ritchie um, and uh, Ms. Hale. Um, there's a lot bundled in here, lots of metrics. Um, there's, it's a major package and it's been built on, you know, the foundation of so many of the things we do. So thank, thanks so much for putting that all together. I know that some of this is, as always, it's always going to be organic and moving forward, but just to see it all bundled here, thanks for that presentation and, and uh, giving it to us. I can imagine the butcher papers up on the wall over the years, you know, updating and, and putting all this together. So, again, thanks. And uh, I think we all would have, you know, many questions in there. I think um, the only two questions that I would have had um, that I would have said right now that I'll just refer to is, and I think you parenthetically mentioned it, is, you know, the, um, I, I, the, the number of uh, the water consumption um, numbers mm -hmm. on there. You said, you know, 
they'll probably be hopefully going down at some time or another, or at least you think they'll be going down. So um, thanks for mentioning that. And um, and then there was, again, I guess I'm just going to point out that, you know, things are in ranges based on, you know, you know, if this happens or if that happens, for example, the, you know, if all of a sudden, you know, Mountain Tunnel goes down, we're going to have to do this, that, and, and what have you. And, and the fact that, uh, I'll just mention, I know we had an emergency order because there was one piece that was down for a little bit, and we had to get a contractor out to make sure that everything was in place so there would be nothing that was down if there was even just, you know, a glitch in the system. That all seems to be accounted for somewhere in this in this huge uh grid of metrics and, and maps and what have you. So again, I'm going to say thank you to all the staff for um, um, both of those presentations and, and the th stuff you have there. So like I said, I think we have, um, there will be questions. So Commissioner Ajami. Uh, Mr. Ritchie, thank you so much. Um, going back to the earlier comment I made and the comment I made when we had a call, um, you know, I, I look at all this, this is absolutely fantastic. I, I would say under environmental stewardship, I think a lot of those falls under um, responding to different kind of environmental mm -hmm. issues, right? Including yep. climate change, for example, wildfires. And obviously we have always had wildfires, but now it's kind of like, you know, it, it is becoming an epidemic in some sense here and there. So environmental stewardship is sort of can go hand in hand with climate resilience in some ways. So I think it, is, it can be different terminologies, but it's important to, um, to acknowledge that a little bit more. Um, and, and again, I still say we need to think about how this overarching measure can sort of impacts every one part of our uh, uh, functioning. I have a conceptual question for you, which is 20 years ago, as uh, you were, you know, you have been working in the water sector for many years. But 20 years ago, if I would have asked you, um, tell me what are your five top five priorities? I think beyond the fact that we have gone from the list that we had in 2008 to where it is right now, what are the un unanticipated things that maybe at that time you would not have thought about and now it, it is quite real and central to our functioning? Or, or, or vulnerabilities that we have to think about? Well, um, wildfire is a good example where, you know, we have a history of being able to deal with fires, but the magnitude has obviously gotten much different now. Uh, and imagining that it would be that much bigger overall, I don't think was, was really on anybody's radar at all. Um, uh, the, the, thing I, the thing I didn't anticipate, and I, and I go back further, I, I started with PUC for a few years in the 90s, uh, was uh, there were serious questions about whether or not San Francisco would step up and take care of the system. And I do recall uh, a meeting with uh, uh, bond rating agencies. Uh, I did my first one in 1996. Uh, and I think as a result of the discussion, we were talking at that point about a, uh, a capital improvement program for water that was like $600 million over, and this is all of water, uh, over 10 years. And the bond rating agency uh, gave us a negative outlook because they, they didn't think the commission had the wherewithal to raise rates to do what was necessary. Uh, and that was a, an interesting 
you know, I, I was very brand new to the PUC and in water at that time, and I thought, oh dear, this is a challenge well, and I think the city, the PUC, people have stepped up and done that. Uh, so that's a, that's a huge change uh, from where we were uh, just in the, just prior to the 2000s. Um, in terms of other things out there, uh, I, I answered this question a lot, you know, would it surprise you to hear that? fill in the blank, and I, I, I see the same thing now. Nothing surprises me anymore. Uh, and that's sort of, I, I've, I've been around too much because literally nothing surprises me. You get all kinds of things that you just don't expect. Uh, and that's, and you have to be ready for that. Uh, yes, the same with that's the, why I asked that question. Because I think there's one thing to be responding to what is in front of us, which is often what a lot of us do, just because it's a day-to-day -day operation right. that needs to function, that needs to provide reliable water supply. There's another thing to kind of anticipate, you know, are we going to have another, like, five-year drought back-to-back -back for mm -hmm. another 10 years? Potentially, right? Or not. We don't know. We don't obviously don't have a crystal ball. But I'm, the reason I'm asking this question is... He's at number three. You, oh, I know. No, I, I think this. he was done. Oh, okay. Um, so I think the point is, I think level of service is one way to think currently how we are doing 20 years from now. What is it that we have to do to make sure the same level of service can be provided to people? And, and I think maybe the last 20 years is obvious. I mean, we know it's not an indicator for what's coming next. And considering everything that's happening so fast and the, the, a lot of the anticipated things that nobody really knows how are going to impact us. I want to give you the, I mean, I want to give everybody in our staff an opportunity to think a little bit outside of the box. Think about this level of service exercise as an exercise for what is it that we am not, am I, I'm not imagining, and I know you're imagining everything, but all those things you're imagining. <laughs> That's why I asked you that question, because you have been around for a long time. You have seen, you know, even when you were in the regional board, I mean, I don't think we were dealing with so many algal bloom, um, you know, out, uh, outbreaks the way we are doing it right now, right? So a lot of these things that we see right now, we didn't used to have. Actually, at that time, we knew that the nutrient loads were harder than uh, the system could bear, and we were all wondering, why we weren't seeing algal bloom. So there was a lot of research we started at that time that's paying off now in terms of understanding of that. So but we even then we, we were see, thinking about it. Yeah, but you know, now we see, even though we have improved our wastewater treatment plants, we still see a lot more mm -hmm. algal blooms, right? So it wasn't, it wasn't just improving our technology, it's other things that are in play that we, are, we can't really have, we don't have control over. The reason I'm saying all this thing is we have a chance to think about this strategically. And I think we should use this level of service exercises as a way of saying, hell may break, we have to think about how this thing is gonna function. I mentioned that when we were having this conversation offline as well. It's not about the earthquake, and obviously it is, about one break. It's about this gradual, uh, this, I don't want to use it, call it a disaster, but a gradual breaking that's coming through, like all these different things that we see. And I want to see for us to be a little bit more, um, and I'm, this is not coming as a criticism, this is actually coming as 
we need to be more strategic. We need to think about this long term. We need to think what are the unanticipated things that we might be dealing with in 20 years. If that means we have to change the way we do rest set our rates, if that means that we have to change the way we access bond markets, if that means that we have to change the way we do operations in our water system, you know, if we have to, we have to deal with a lot of different things, right? So long comment saying, I, you know, I appreciate all this and I just want to see um, for us to challenge ourselves to see what we don't see right now. Try to anticipate all the unknowns that we don't know yet. Commissioner Maxwell. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Oh man, I lost my train of thought. Um, I guess my, um, one of my concerns, and I, I wanted to know when I look at the 24 hour water supply restoration, mm -hmm. And then I, I, I looked and I saw a routine main, main break uh, on, the on my phone. There was an alert that there was a routine main break. So what is a routine main break as it relates to, I'm getting there, as it relates to water supply and restoration? Um, What's the difference between, I mean, because routine to me means all the time, every day, or something to that. Yeah, actually the... Well, uh, it's hard to say that all main breaks are rarities because we have we experience between 100 and 200 a year. So there are routine main breaks. Uh, there were you know a couple in the last few days where uh, you're able to keep people in water generally, uh, and uh, the restoration might take a couple of hours. That is generally what you would put in the routine category. The you know. Beyond routine is what happened at Fillmore and Green, where basically we, we disrupt, physically disrupted a whole city block. Uh, so the routines are things that they, they are going to happen. We cannot prevent them. Uh, we can do our best. We can try to come up with better technology to uh, avoid them. Now, when we talk about you know, the first 24 hours, that's presuming there is a seismic event that is resulting in probably several hundred main breaks uh, in San Francisco. You know, it's hard to, you, lots of people have analyzed it and said, well, you know, the whole system's gonna fall apart or, you know, you're gonna have a few hundred or they're gonna have, we're gonna have a lot. Uh, in a big seismic event, there will be many main breaks uh, and that will be far from routine. Okay, so, so we think that the best way to characterize that is to say routine. I mean, you, you feel that that's the best well, way because it's, it, it just sounds like routine, like just expect a main break every day all the time. And I, I know you just said we should, but is that really what we want to put out there? I, I mean, I, I, I well, just... Well, we're putting that out for our... Those, those you know, announcements go to us internally. Um, oh. And, the, you know, they, they used to all say unusual. Well, yes, in one level, they're all unusual. Uh, they're all unique. Uh, so we, we can work on a different word uh, to get there, but the, the fact that they are going to happen, like I said, between 100 and 200 a year is about the norm for us. So that's one every three days or one every couple of days that happens. Um, okay, and then again, uh, the same comment with um, water. When we talk about educating our public and we talk about trying to bring us down from 40, under 45, one of our 
goals, I mean, it seems to me it should be that we're going to do, you know, what we what we're we're doing. We're educating our public on trying to save water, and by doing that, we're also giving them all kind of different tools that they can use. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're providing things, and and it just seems that that should be a part of our goals. I mean, the education. I know you're trying to make it short, I guess, but I think there should be a little bit more about what we're doing and 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 when when we talk about education how are we you just said educate well educating them toward what different water systems well it seems to me it should be a little bit more specific on how we educate our people and our populace about water since we're trying to get them to lose use less of it so i i just i just think we we're doing so many great things and you guys are so humble and so modest that you don't really tell the whole everything, and I think we should do a better job of saying, of, of, of talking about what we do. And, and we try to do that many ways. You'll see our water resources division annual Well, report. I'm just looking when at I, this. I, I know you're looking you at do, this. Maybe you do, but when I, I look at this, this is where I'd like to see it. I'm not saying that you don't, but if you're giving me something and you're talking about it, then it should be in what you're talking about. When I see levels of service and water and enterprise, this is where I'd like to see. I'm not looking at it. I mean, I look at my bill and I go over that, but I'd like to see it here. I, I, I appreciate that. Uh, the original was one page long. This is four pages long. We'll make it six. And, and if that's maybe well, or we're or reading 10 or anyway. 12, let's they, cuss, it let's can be have very it, long. You know? I just <laughs> let's. We, that's we, okay. We, I mean, we read it. I mean, these reports. Yeah, I mean, I, I just, I don't mind. I really don't. But other people may get this. I mean, we're thinking, you're just thinking of us. But it's, it's on. It's out here. And I'd like people to see a little bit more, if they happen to want to get into it, what we're really doing. We're doing some amazing things. And we should say it more than one time and in more than one place. Another comment? Mr. Ritchie? Yeah. No. Okay. Uh, sorry, can, I, can I add to something? Yeah. Go ahead. For a second, I just want to say, actually, I agree with Commissioner Maxwell. I think people underestimate us all the time. They're like, oh, you're 45. Oh, just because you guys are so small. Oh, you're like, you have on-site reuse because you're so dense. No, because we are leaders. And I think that is so important. And I know because on my day job, I see you all the time at meetings. And you're always, you know, uh, talking about San Francisco values and what we have done. But I think it's just, it is very important for people in the city also to know that what a leader we are when it comes to a lot of these things like water, power, finance. You know, these, are, these don't, things don't come easily. They come from vision, right? People should have vision and space to implement those vision. And I think that's, I think that's what Commissioner Maxwell is also talking about, which is, it's great we are doing them. We want to make sure we kind of, everybody knows. Okay, I think point, is, point has been taken. I'm hearing let's do better on everything and to keep looking at everything and let's publicize it as much as can be. And I know there are those many different departments and staffers that do that stuff. General Manager, do yeah. you have a comment? If I might, Commissioners. First, we appreciate you complimenting us on the great work that we do. So <laughs> thank you. Um, and I will, will just say that you know, every document that we, obviously different documents that we bring um, are, are for different purposes. And obviously, this level of service goal was an internal document to guide us how we provide our service. Not we, it, It's never been our view that 
every, and I'm not saying we shouldn't include things, but not every document did, in sure. our mindset Public was an advocacy piece, sure. okay? Sure. However, your points are well taken, uh, uh, and we do do, I mean, I think a, a good job in advocating um, uh, and talking about the good work that everybody in, in the uh, department is doing, but I hear your sentiments, and we will look at maybe ways that we can incorporate some of your sentiments and your um, um, things you'd like to see uh, in the document. But uh, we recognize that um, you know it, it's important that we do uh, put things out uh, as as openly as possible. Commissioner Stacy, thank you. Thank you. I've I've just been listening to the comments of the commission and thinking about you know what what do we do now and how do we move forward and I was looking at the objectives um, on the community support uh, just in reference to your last comment Commissioner Maxwell where we say provide the public with appropriate educational opp opportunities by providing education programs and recreation opportunities in cooperation with other local state and federal agencies and I wonder if that's the objective where we would look at how to help people you know know how to decrease further their water consumption if that's if that's your concern i think what you've you've both also said maybe all three of you have also said is that we need to be more uh specific about our successes and that we have been leaders and when i think about the the climate change questions that we were talking about earlier I, I'm not sure that belongs in the LOS, but it certainly um, it belongs as a, an overarching objective. And I, I think not just an objective, I think uh, Ms. Hale said that it, it's part of everything the PUC does. Mm -hmm. It's part of every planning, every project that we just have to think about it. It's It's part of uh, the That's environment correct. in which we find ourselves now and all the further problems that we're going to see in the future. And so I, I think moving forward, what you're hearing from the commission is that we'd, we'd like to hear presentations articulate what we're doing just to make sure that the public is aware of it and to make sure that the Commission is aware of how much planning and how much the PUC thinks about um, these issues and everything it does. But I, and, and I don't know if you were suggesting amendments to these levels of service today or if you are thinking sort of more long term what to do, but those are just my thoughts about um, how to address those issues. I, I think they are really important issues and important things to, to address. Thank you, Commissioner Stacy. Commissioner Maxwell? Well, I wanted to move this forward. I, I didn't want to hold up anything, but I would, would not mind seeing some amendments made that talk about our environmental stewardship. And that's extremely important. We have to make sure that we um, talk about it because other people are saying we're not and, 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 and things. So we, we need to really talk about what we're doing as part of environmental stewardship. And if we talk about it, and if we say that, then people begin to associate the PUC with environmental stewardship. And I think that's who we are, and that's what we are, and, um, and we need to just make sure that we say that. 
So I don't, I don't want to hold anything. I just want to, I'd like to see it. Point taken. Um, I think we're getting close to comment, but um, Commissioner Jami and Commissioner Stacy both want to have more comments. I also don't want to hold this up, but I would say um, I think actually impacts of um, environmental degradation and climate change are going to impact our level of service. And that's why it's essential our level of service reflects those impacts in different ways. Um, so as our uh, social and environmental justice issues, they are going to impact our level of service in different ways. So that's why they're very in, sort of instrumental in the way we define these objectives, define these uh, performance measures, and measure them in the long run. Um, I don't want to keep us from moving forward. I just want to make sure, um, you know, this is an exercise, and as we are moving forward, it's better incorporated in our decision making. I, I take your sentiments, and we will, uh, they're taken into account. We'll make sure that we Thank incorporate you. them in some yeah, way. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I just want to ask one last thing I would say is, again, 100% agree with Commissioner Maxwell. Also, I go to a lot of meetings, some water, since this is what I do for a living. And these days, everybody only talks about how we are um, impacting the environment. Not many people talk about our water use that's very low or the fact that we have been very innovative in our diversifying our water supplies. I barely hear any of that. The f first thing everybody says is, what is going on with X, Y, Z, which is not, not as much positive as it should be. So, And I don't want, I mean, obviously, I always switch it back to there are a billion things we do great, one thing we are working towards, um, but I think it's important that may, we make sure we are represented correctly externally. Commissioner Stacy, My last comment, I think, and this may be getting too into the weeds, but I, I, I would recommend on the power level of service to have a live link to the performance metrics so that when somebody pulls up the power level of service, they would see that um, link so that they could really go look at the performance metrics. And same thing on the water level of service, this water enterprise environmental stewardship policy. It'd be great if, you know, when you post these link. level of services mm -hmm. on the website to have a live link so that people really can connect the two yep. easily. That's doable. Thank you. Thank okay. And good question, good answer. And just finally, Commissioner Stacy, um, perhaps, um, look, this is a, these were levels of service, obviously, um, but there are ways to get more granular and detailed, I'm sure, in terms of being more prescriptive um, in the things that we link to, so people can have that. So we will, um, we will look at ways to um, incorporate that, amend it, to have that be a flow, and that would be a, a way we can get into some more of this detail that um, people would be interested to see. Okay, um, we'll open it up now to public comment on Mr. Ritchie's presentation, which is, since we're bifurcating these, I guess this would be number seven. We can have public comment together. Public comment together. For seven and eight. I thought we, okay, we had public comment on the first one, I thought, anyway. Okay, go on. Public comment on seven and eight is now open. And I see um, nobody coming to the mic. Is there anybody that had um, asked for permission to get on? 
No, but we have, I just want to make note that we did have receive three letters uh, on item number seven that will be reflected in the minutes and, and their comments will be linked in the minutes. Great. Thank you, Madam Secretary. So can we have a motion and second? Um, we'll take these separately. A motion um, to accept uh, item uh, seven. I'll move. The goals and objectives. I'll second. So there's a motion and a second. Can we have a roll call, please? President Paulson? Aye. Commissioner Maxwell? Aye. Commissioner Jami? Aye. Commissioner Stacy? Aye. We have four ayes. Okay, and can we have a motion and second for item seven? Move to I'm approve. I'm sorry, item eight. Oh, sorry. For item eight, item I'm eight. sorry. Move to approve the power enterprise level of service goals and objectives. I'll second. There's a motion and a second. Can we have a roll call on item eight then, please? President Paulson? Aye. Commissioner Maxwell? Aye. Commissioner Jami? Aye. Commissioner Stacy? Aye. You have four eyes. Okay. Um, can we read the next item, please? Next item is item number nine. Approve the revised water supply revised water supply assessment for the proposed San Francisco Municipal Transportation Authority Portero Yard Modernization Project. Before we start, can I recognize Commissioner um, Stacy? Thank you, President Paulson. I would like to ask to be recused on this item. My uh, husband's firm, LMS Architects Office, is a block away, and there's a rule that even for leaseholds, if there's uh, clear and convincing evidence that the development would have uh, a financial impact on their lease, that I should ask to be recused. And so in an abundance of caution, I'd like to ask the commission to recuse me. And I've been informed that uh, in this particular case that we do need to have a vote to uh, authorize the recusal. And if we could take a motion to that effect, um, to a motion to um, accept the recusal of uh, Commissioner Stacy from item nine. Um, do we I'll have move. a motion? Second. There's a motion and second. Can we do a roll call, please? President Paulson? Aye. Commissioner Maxwell? Aye. Commissioner Jami? Aye. And you have three ayes. So, um, Commissioner Stacy has been recused, and if she could uh, step out as we hear <laughs> item nine, please. And we will have I guess we are ready for item okay. nine. Uh, yes, Commissioner Steve Ritchie again for Assistant General Manager for Water. Uh, this is uh, one of our standard water supply assessments. Again, this one is one that has been revised based on the new uh, housing element numbers that are included. Uh, this is, again, not approval of the project, but this is approval of the water supply assessment to move forward in the CEQA process. Uh, so we would recommend approval of this document. Okay. Um, any comments from uh, commissioners? Questions? Uh, I have actually a quick question. Yes. Um, does this mean that this will come back to us after they go through the CEQA process? Well, as, as needed, depending on what the CEQA process goes out and what oh. permits there, there may be an action by this commission. There may not be an action by this commission. Okay. But this is not an approval action. That just we want to be clear on that. Okay. Got it. Thank you. Got it. Um, so any other uh, questions or comments from the commissioners? If not, uh, we should go to public comment. And um, is there, if you could uh, announce public comment, please. Do we have any members of the public present to provide the public comment on item number nine? 
See none. We see none. So um, can we get a motion um, to approve item nine? I'll move to approve. I'll second. Motion and second. Um, roll call, please. President Paulson? Aye. Commissioner Maxwell? Aye. Commissioner Jeremy? Aye. You have three ayes. Motion passes. And can we um, get Commissioner Stacy back her. to the podium? I'll, I'll go. She is here. By magic. Item number 10, uh, approve the revised water supply assessment for the proposed 655 4th Street project. Um, and who will be presenting on that? Yep, Steve Ritchie again. Again, similar to the previous item. Uh, this is just a routine water supply assessment, again, revised to reflect the new housing element numbers. Uh, and again, this is going forward to the Planning Commission for them to carry forward with the CEQA process. And this is not an approval action for the project. Uh, we recommend approval. Okay. Uh, any comments from commissioners? Seeing none, um, we will open this up to public comment. Do we have members of the public present to provide comment on item 10? See none. Seeing none, um, is there a motion um, for item 9 approval? Move to approve. I'm sorry, yes. this is item 10. Oh. Or, uh, not item 10. I'm getting my numbers <laughs> wrong. Thank you. Item 10 for the revised water supply for 655 4th Street project. Is there a motion? So moved. <laughs> second. <laughs> second. Motion and second. Can we have a roll call, please? Sorry. President Paulson? Aye. Commissioner Maxwell? Aye. Commissioner Jeremy? Aye. Commissioner Stacy? You have four ayes. That motion passes. Item 11, please. M11 approved Hetch Hetchy Power's updated, um, updated integrated resource plan and authorized the general manager or the general manager's designee to submit the updated integrated resource plan to the California Energy Commission prior to April 30, 2024. Good afternoon, commissioners. My name is Julia Ogeen, and I'm the director of origination and power supply for the Power Enterprise. May I please have my slides? Today I'm presenting our update to the Hetch Hetchy Power's Long-Term Integrated Resource Plan. I have a spoiler alert. Based on our forecast of load growth, in about 10 years, Hetch Hetchy Power will need more renewable energy to maintain its 100% energy portfolio. Staff recommends that in the coming years, as we continue to monitor customers' demand growth, we should prepare to procure new long-term renewable energy supplies to serve Hetch Hetchy Power customers. For the rest of the presentation, I will provide a background on the integrated resource plan, describe our approach to updating the plan, review our analysis and findings, and I will conclude with next steps. We have defined a few, oh, excuse me. We have defined a few key terms that we used in our IRP for reference by the commission and the public. Um, in the interest of time, I am not going to go through these today, but these are important um, words that we use in our IRP. An integrated resource plan, or an IRP, is an energy planning tool to support achieving policy goals and meeting regulatory requirements. It evaluates electricity supply and demand and identifies energy resource options that can deliver reliable and affordable energy to customers. Hetch Hetchy Power is required by commission policy 
and state law to develop an IRP at least every five years. Our update IRP must be submitted to the California Energy Commission in early 2024. Hetechi Power last IRP was adopted in 2018. The 2018 IRP focused on several scenarios for investment and operation in the Hetch Hetchy hydroelectric system. Examining the economic trade-off between different capital investments in the system with a goal of optimizing the value of Hetch Hetchy's hydroelectric system to its electricity customers. Our 2023 IRP update focuses on identifying the future electricity resource requirements to support Hetch Hetchy's growing customer demand. The 2023 IRP update forecasts future supply and demand under various conditions and identifies whether additional power supplies are required to maintain a reliable and 100% renewable energy supply for Hetch Hetchy Power customers. Today, Hetch Hetchy Power's total portfolio contains 388 megawatts of generating capacity and produces energy that is 100% greenhouse gas free. As you can see from this illustration, electricity produced by the powerhouses that make up Hetch Hetchy system travels down 160 miles of transmissions lines to the, <clears throat> from the Sierra Nevada mountains to the California ISO managed electric grid in the Bay Area where it is eventually distributed to both PG&E and city-owned electric distribution infrastructures to our customers. For our IRP update, we analyzed energy resource options for four load forecast scenarios. The base case is the one and two scenario, or a forecast that has a 50% chance of occurring. The other three scenario forecast distribution area peak demand under high temperature conditions. These cases referred to as a one in five, a one in 10, a one in 20, forecast peak demand under temperature conditions that have a 20, 10, and 5% chance of occurring. Hetechi Power is forecasting a significant growth in electric energy demand over the planning horizon with the one and two load scenario growing by an average of 5% per year over 2024 to 2034 period. The load forecast takes into consideration various factors, including real estate development trends in our service territory and other load changes among key customers, including the San Francisco International Airport and the Municipal Transportation Agency. Our analysis assumed the continued operations of all Hetch Hetchy hydroelectric generation through 2045. The hydroelectric generation forecast included three scenarios, an average normal, an average wet, and an average dry scenario. These scenarios were developed using historical system performance over 20 years. We developed four new renewable resource scenarios which are summarized in the table. The scenarios include northern and southern California solar, onshore and offshore wind, and geothermal energy resources. The analysis assumed delivery start dates for these new long-term renewable energy supplies as soon as 2033, with a target of adding 150 megawatts per year to the Hetch Hetchy Power portfolio. Over the next several years, Hetch Hetchy Power is forecasted to be long generation and a net seller of power. 
Through the end of this decade, Hetch Hetchy Power's generation is forecasted to be sufficient to meet all four load forecast scenarios if supplemented by short-term market purchases when needed. However, when the Hetch Hetchy Power's strong retail sales growth over this period, we forecast it will need to identify additional resources of energy to supplement existing supplies to meet demand on a regular basis beginning in 2033. The San Francisco PUC adopted Hetch Hetchy's Power's Renewable Portfolio Standard Procurement Plan through Resolution 12-0217. Since that time, Hetch Hetchy Power has supplied 100% of its retail sales on an annual basis with energy from either Hetch Hetchy Hydroelectric System or with California RPS eligible supplies. This table summarizes our annual snapshot of the RPS compliance in five-year increments over the IRP planning horizon. The bottom row shows the resulting RPS compliance position of each of these sample years with portfolio shortfalls emerging in 2035, 2040, and 2045. This chart provides another snapshot of the Hetch Hetchy portfolio showing the monthly energy balance on a base case with no additional procurement for the calendar year of 2035. This chart shows the seasonality of our demand and supply portfolio. The orange bar segments indicate that Hetch Hetchy Power is projected to be short energy in the late summer, fall, and winter, and long in the spring and early summer. Here is the result of incorporating our renewable resource scenario A into the portfolio. Scenario A includes 100 megawatts of Southern California solar, 25 megawatts of offshore wind, and 25 megawatts of geothermal. Scenario A helps us meet most of our fall and winter shortfalls and requires some additional short-term purchases from the market. These purchases are, net, are netted by market sales of excess supply in the spring and summer months. Going back to the annual representation of the portfolio, you can see that with the addition of new long-term renewable energy supplies represented here in orange and supplemented by some short-term purchases in blue, Hetch Hetchy would be able to meet its annual energy requirements and reduce its exposure to the market. To summarize some of our key findings, Hetch Hetchy retail sales are projected to grow about 5% per year over the next decade. This customer load growth combined with hydroelectric variability will require Hetch Hetchy Power to procure approximately 150 megawatts of renewable energy supply in 2033. Adding new long-term renewable energy supplies to the portfolio would reduce Hetch Hetchy Power's energy market exposure risk while maintaining its compliance with state and local regulatory and policy requirements. The energy supply need would be met with a combination of different renewable energy resources to support portfolio diversity. And going back to our Hetch Hetchy Power System illustration, this is what the future state, say in 2035, might look like. Hetch Hetchy Power's customer's peak demand is forecast to increase from 150 megawatts to about 240 megawatts. New renewable resources of about 150 megawatts would be delivered into the California ISO to reliably serve our retail customer load. Looking ahead, 
ask, asking the commission to adopt the updated IRP before the end of the calendar year. Staff will need to finalize our report and submit an IRP update to California Energy Commission in early 2024. And finally, staff will continue to monitor our customer load growth and conduct further analysis to identify an optimal mix of cost-effective cost and commercially available renewable energy resources to serve our customers. We will keep the commission informed of our findings and recommended actions. That concludes my presentation, and I am happy to answer any questions that you may have. Great. Thank you for that presentation. That was uh, quite a bundle and quite a balance sheet that you have in there, pretty, uh, pretty serious um, stuff, and I, I see we're going to have a lot of questions um, about this. We'll start with Commissioner Ajami. Thank you for your presentation. I have a couple of questions, but I'm going to start from your slide 10, hydroelectric generation scenarios, if you, they can pull the slide up. Um, so you mentioned um, this is using historical data. I'm going to wait. Uh, 10, slide 10, please. Thank you. Perfect. So you mentioned this was used, uh, this was generated using historical data. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, um, did anybody do some additional perturbing to see if, I mean, historical data is not anymore representing what we are anticipating to happen in the future. So I'm wondering if we are sort of also uh, introducing other extreme thing, extreme events to this. There are ways to do that, obviously. I know we have very sophisticated modelers in-house mm -hmm. that can do this. Um, but I, my suggestion is potentially looking into, um, you know, historical data and then perturb it even more to have a broader set of ensembles and scenarios that you can look into because what if instead of these three, four years of drought, we ended up with like eight years of drought? What will happen then, right? So I think, and, and more, I guess another thing is, if you There's have- a question there, right? If you don't mind, give me one second. Um, if, you, if you have multiple of this back-to-back, -back, how do you sort of manage that from one, like four years of drought, one year of wet, four years of drought? Like, you know, these things can be quite um, unexpected, so I'm wondering how we can make that happen in here. So we did run those sensitivities. So I, I totally agree that we have to be looking at all of the sensitivities. So I'm an economist by trade. So okay. I completely understand where you're coming from. We did run quite a few sensitivities. They're not all in this slide deck just because we had 10 minutes. But okay. we did do some extreme analysis on that. And um, on the generation and the load, that's why we had four different yeah, scenarios absolutely. on that. Like we mm -hmm. did some really strong weather climate events that would happen on the load too as well. And the reason why we used the 20-year 20, um, um, historical is that we really don't have a really a, a great tool to really give us a 20-year-plus forecast moving forward for what power receives from the Hetch Hetchy supply. Mm. So we kind of said, this has some anomalies in it. That's great. So now let's stress that. Like, we did some stress analysis on that because at all times, what my team is responsible for do is exactly what you said. We have to know the what-ifs. What right. if this happened? How are we going to manage it? What is the risk that are going to be um, associated with this portfolio? This is part of our optimization tools that we use sure. daily. And so I, I completely agree with you. So the reason why we chose that, we had, an, we had that was like the best data, that, the data set mm. that we had. And then we flipped it 20 years forward. And then we ran some, yeah. some sure. really strong sensitivities on it. 
And what we did come to find out and everything that we did run between the years of 2030 and 2035, there was going to be a need for excess right. generation sure. and mainly demand driven because right. the demand curve was exceeding our supply. So um, I, if I'm not mistaken, I know actually for a fact that Mr. Ritchie has a, a team of hydrologists that are they working do. up in the mountains yeah. and doing, uh, uh, I've had a few conversations with them, uh, and they're doing a lot of ensemble forecasting mm -hmm. beyond just like using historical mm -hmm. data and doing sensitivity analysis. So I, I suggest maybe there would be an opportunity for you guys to use those resources together. There are sort of new um, uh, methodologies out mm -hmm. there that you can do better projections like uh, considering climate scenarios. Um, and then as a follow-on to that question, uh, going to uh, slide, uh, sorry, give me one quick second, um, slide 15 and 16. Um, while, you, while we're going there, let me ask you a question. So I'm assuming we're going to sign a power purchase agreement with all these projects you have, you have highlighted, right? Mm -hmm. That's correct. So, and we are in the process of signing those or we are no, having no you're just not. because okay. it's you know we're looking at this like in 2033 but what okay. we want to do is make sure that we have a planning in place and we okay. also want to make sure it's cost effective sure. so in everything we we're doing you guys spoke quite a bit about this earlier about you know when we manage these portfolios the one thing we want to make sure is that first of all that we're um you know any position any any new assets that we bring into the portfolio bring reliability you know, keeping the lights on for our customers, affordability for our ratepayers, and then also resiliency in our um, portfolio itself. Right. So we did four different scenarios based on what we could be purchasing in today's market. And that's, that's how we look at that going forward. Because, I mean, it would be great if we know what the technology advancements are going to be, you know, sure. eight years of from course. now. That would be yeah. awesome. <laughs> but we're just taking what the snapshot that we have today. And that's how I always look at a planning tool. Like, that, that's kind of how we move through in looking at our portfolios every day. Okay, snapshot today, what does it look like? Snapshot tomorrow, what does it look like? Okay. And so we just continue doing that. So this, what, we, what I presented today is something that will be ongoing for us. The reason I'm asking that is I'm, I'm wondering which, how many other utilities are out there that are counting on those projects as part of their portfolio. Yeah. Right? And Many. Uh, yes. And that's <laughs> why I asked that question, right? So that means that we are all counting on that. Mm -hmm. And then if there are like, you know, 50 of those, I mean, obviously we have power monopolies that, yeah. that we, don't only, we only have three or four in California. But... Beyond that, there are all these small utilities, mm -hmm. and that's, you know, we're all going to be competing for the same thing. So that's going to be right. an interesting situation. Going back on the water piece, um, one other thing I wanted to mention is you guys are also, it's good to run some scenarios on how, under different environmental regulations, we may need to release water in different times and mm -hmm. what's going to happen there. So that might also be impacting your production process. So Absolutely. think about that as part of your scenario analysis, too. And then uh, the last thing is um, on slide 19. Um, so... Earlier you had this slide and it said in-city solar resources, 8 megawatts, 8 plus. And you had the same thing on your earlier slide. Um, you know, I've brought this up to Ms. Hale as well. You know, I think there are a lot of roofs that we can put solar panels on. There are a lot more that we can potentially do. And I think 
since there are some uncertainties on how much power we might be able to purchase, we'll see what happens. We will see what the next mm -hmm. technology is. I think we should also look into how we can put programs together. For example, there are these, um, you know, you've probably looked into this, but they're like, you can, um, I can't remember the name of it, but I know there's a program that you basically rent everybody's roof and you put your solar panel on top of it and then you basically have an agreement on um, the power that's generated. Uh, and I, there's a term for it. I'm sure it's come to me, but, um, you know, that's one. We have a lot of also, for example, malls, different kind of mm -hmm. spaces that can potentially do. I'm just trying to see what are the other ways we can increase our inter, in, in its inner city production uh, beyond just thinking about where we can purchase because that's probably a cheaper option for us too because it's production to distribution rather than paying on top of the power purchase. So those were my comments. But thank you so much. This Absolutely. is always so exciting to watch. I'm, I love the whole integrated planning <laughs> process, as you can see. So. <laughs> That's great. Commissioner Stacy. Uh, thank you. So uh, just a comment that you made in response to the last question. The PUC does not have agreements in place with the wind projects in Morro Bay or Humboldt. Those are just examples of projects that you see coming on. Okay. That's right. And then <clears throat> you also may have answered this already in several of your slides, 10, 13, 14, and maybe 17, you show a substantial decrease in hydroelectric um, in calendar years 2038 to 2041. Is this because our projections show that those aren't going to be dry years. Is that why the, okay. Yes, we wanted to make sure that, that we were flipping and using anomalies in yeah. our forecast. And yeah. so that was extremely important for us because I do agree that, especially where we're at in a microclimate environment and then also just with the climate change that we were showing that in our that generation portfolio as yeah. well as our demand portfolio. I yeah. just wanted to make sure we're doing it on both sides. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Commissioners? Okay, no, thank you. I have the same question about. Okay. okay great. So, um, no more questions. Let's uh, bring this uh, to uh, public comment, please. Do any members of the public present to provide comment on item 11? We have none. Seeing none, um, is there a motion to have uh, this author's item nine um, to authorize this plan to be submitted? Is there a motion? I'll move to approve. Second. There's a motion and second. Can we have a roll call, please? President Paulson? Aye. Commissioner Maxwell? Aye. Commissioner Jami? Aye. Commissioner Stacy? Aye. We have four ayes. The item passes. Um, number 12, we have some more amend metrics um, and plans we are a busy organization are we not so item 12 can you read item 12 please item 12 adopt affordability metrics for combined residential water and sewer bills with a focus on typical and low-income customers hello commissioners and members of the public my name is Erin Corvinova I'm your financial planning director and I'm here today to talk about a proposed affordability policy for the SFPUC can I get the slides thank you um, this is small font, so I'm not going to dwell on it, but I wanted to start out by grounding us in what we're doing here and why. This entire policy is driven by the idea of financial sustainability as a core value for our agency. 
We have requirements in the San Francisco Charter that say we must ensure that we maintain our bond ratings, that we provide sufficient resources to maintain our system, and these are things that drive everything we do around our finances. This particular item is coming out of the Capital Planning Improvement Initiative, which I know this commission has heard a little bit about. And in particular, one of the work streams of that program is targeted at financial sustainability, asking the question, how do we make sure that we have the financial resources now and in the future to fund our big capital improvements that this agency needs? We took a look at that particular work stream and said, okay, let's start by thinking about our financial policies. What financial policies do we have and are they providing sufficient guidance for us to make these long-term planning decisions? We have existing financial policies, many of which are very important and they guide all our choices. Uh, we have a fund balance reserve policy to make sure we have funds for emergency operations. We have a debt service coverage policy to make sure we can meet our bond indenture requirements and have funds available to pay our uh, debt commitments we take on. We have a capital financing policy that talks about our reserves and how we're funding things. We're issuing bonds, are we paying for it out of cash? And then we have a rate pair assurance policy that sets various policy targets around our setting our rates and how we manage our budgets. But one of the things we identified looking at our financial policies as a gap was that we don't have any policy that explicitly speaks to customer bill affordability. And so that's what this policy in front of you today is aiming to target. We do have existing uh, documents that say that we should care about affordability at the SFPUC. The charter itself requires that we think about how to do our rate structures to support low-income customers, and our rate pair assurance policy, one of our existing policies, also specifically says we should care about affordability. However, neither of these documents sets performance metrics, and performance metrics, as a finance person, are something that are really helpful in doing our financial planning because they make the decisions more concrete and let you score yourself. It almost goes without saying to say that San Francisco is an expensive place to live, but in the context of this item, we need to say it. Uh, as one of the most highest cost of living cities in the entire United States, San Franciscans regularly face challenges just to continue living here. Just to give one example, the median four-person household in San Francisco makes $144,000 a year. According to a calculator developed by the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, a living wage for a two-person household with two children, so two parents, two children, just to live in San Francisco and meet basic needs is $161,000 a year. That's a gap. Our average households in San Francisco struggle every day with housing, with transportation, and with their utilities. Right now, we have a large number, thousands of customers in both water, sewer, and Hetch Hetchy Power who are behind on their utility bills. This shot up in the pandemic, you're familiar with many of the programs we're doing to try and support those customers, but they're still there and they're still struggling. Our customers every day make decisions about how they're going to fund their basic necessities, and we as an agency have an obligation to ensure that we are looking at those customers and considering their needs when we make our financial decisions. This slide shows the existing affordability metric and target that we have in place for our water and sewer enterprises. It states that for the median household in San Francisco, their bill should not exceed 2.5% of their income. The blue and green bars show the water and sewer portions of the bill respectively in the past 10 years and the next 20 years. Um, this graph and all future graphs I'll show 
are using the rate increases that were approved in the February 2023 10-year financial plan, as well as the final retail residential rates that came out of our rate study that we completed in uh, May. So that's where these numbers are coming from. The red line on this graph shows that target, the 2.5% of median household income. You can see that right now in 2023, we are meeting that target. We're well under it. And in fact, over the next 20 years, we're going to continue meeting that target. However, this average monthly household bill is growing from $133 today to $406 a month in 20 years. That's over a 300% increase. Now, I know inflation is real, $400 20 years from now is not the same as today, but it is hard for me as a person who pays my own utility bill to think that a $400 a month water and sewer bill is truly affordable and to look at this graph and say, yep, we've met our target. So this is something that we as an agency sat down to say, have we drawn that red line in the right place? What's appropriate for San Francisco? We want the lines that we draw, the targets that we set to be meaningful, something that when our customers look at it, it passes the Snell check. They say, yep, that is a real measure of affordability. But we also know that we have to do giant capital programs to keep our system operational. If you don't invest in your capital system because you want to save a few dollars, you can end up like Flint, Michigan. That doesn't serve our system. That doesn't serve our customers. So we need to have the flexibility to do these capital improvements while considering our customer affordability. Finally, we want to ground our metrics in San Francisco's own local economy. What's appropriate in other parts of the country is not appropriate in a place that is so expensive to live. Finally, you will note that that last slide only spoke to water sewer. We don't have any affordability metrics or targets for power, so this is something that we're working on, and this policy is setting one piece of that that we're going to continue developing for the power enterprise. I want to define some terms because there are a lot of ways to measure income and uh, it can get very technical. So what this graph is showing is on the left is the uh, idea of lining up every household in San Francisco from the lowest income to the highest income. The median household is the household that's at that 50th percent bar, their little gray dot. In San Francisco right now, they make $126,000 a year, according to the US Census Bureau. Quintiles are the 20th percentile chunk. So the lowest quintile household is the customer that 20% of households in San Francisco are under that line. They're making $38,000 a year right now. The second quintile is the 40th percentile household. So again, we're just lining everybody up and saying who's at 20, who's at 40, who's at 50. Defining those terms because they will come back. Um, the one thing I'll note on this graph is that we put on the right the distribution of incomes for the United States. And you can see that our median household income is 83% higher than the median household for the rest of the country. And in fact, our median household makes more than 80% of households in the entire US. So there's a really good reason that we want to make sure we look at San Francisco economic statistics when thinking about what our target should be for measuring affordability. We are not the same as the rest of the country. One particular area we wanted to focus on is racial equity. So in the 2020 resolution condemning systemic racism and taking action to promote racial justice that this commission passed, we have an obligation to promote racial and social equity in our performance measures and in our strategic long-term planning. This ties directly back to thinking about what incomes of customers we're looking at when we gauge affordability. 
On this chart, we're seeing on the far left, the dark blue bar is the median household income for all San Francisco households. That's the same 126,000 you saw on the prior slide. On the right, you see this disaggregated by race. So this is the median household income by different races. Every single black, indigenous, and person of color household in San Francisco has a lower median income than the city overall. If we just look at the city's overall median, we're completely ignoring the disparate effects of racial inequality in our city. This is a really good reason to think about alternative incomes when we look at affordability. All that said, looking at incomes, we're recommending two different metrics. The first is what we're calling a typical household. We want to keep a measure of what the average household faces in San Francisco. So we're lowering that from the median to account for racial disparities and the high cost of living. The second is the low income household, which we're looking at the 20th percentile income. It's not a lot of magic about why 20th percentile. It's an indicative household who faces challenges. Finally, I want to talk about what are the targets. So that's what we're measuring, and then what do we want to stay under? What's that red line? For the typical household, that's the 40th percentile again, we're targeting to keep their, in, their average water sewer bill under 3%. For the low-income household, we're targeting to keep that bill under 7%. The other thing we've added for the low-income household is we know we have various discount programs that help bring those customers' bill down. We want to look at what does that do, and we want to keep those, those bills under 5% of income. I will note that all of these targets are for water and sewer only. We're measuring the impact of bills for our power customers, but we're not setting targets today because we need to do more work on that. Keep going, Aaron. Don't rush. Thanks. Um, so talking about that target, what does it mean? It's one thing to set a target, but what do you do with a target? Our overall goal is to make timely, informed financial decision making. This policy establishes a very clear process for measuring these different performance metrics and reporting them out. Our aim is to propose operating and capital budgets that keep us under those target lines within the 20-year planning period. However, we know that's not always possible. We may have regulatory requirements. We may need additional R&R. We may just face huge cost increases that mean that we have to make important policy decisions that our agency needs to invest more than we can afford with hitting that target. So if we do that, we will report that out to this commission and to the public. We think it's important to be transparent in our planning. This also means that because we're doing this far 20-out year look, it gives us the opportunity to say, is there something we can do about this? Your rates don't jump up overnight. These happen over time. So when we report out on our capital budgets, if we see that in 15 years we're going to go over that line, we're also required by the policy to propose ways that we could bring it down. Do we seek outside funding? Can we think about different ways of financing our capital plan? Are there ways that we can assist the most impacted customers so the people who are facing the greatest challenges have extra support they may need? So our goal here is to make this one piece of our financial decision-making puzzle so that we can ensure that our customers are getting the support they need and our system is being maintained. I'll close by showing what our average household bills look like for each enterprise under the new metrics and targets. This is the same water and sewer graph you saw before, but we've changed the red line. So now that red line is showing the 7% of the 20th percentile household income, which is our low income target. And then there's an orange line 
which is the 3% of that 40th percentile household, which is the typical household. You can see that now and later, according to the rates that were last approved by this commission in our 10-year financial plan, we are forecasting that we will continue to meet this target. However, the gap has closed. We believe that this is a much more realistic assessment of affordability for San Franciscans than we had before. This is also a new view. This green and blue bars here show the discounted bill for customers who are enrolled in our customer assistance program. This ties back to the 5% of the 20th percentile household target that we're establishing for those. And again, we continue to meet this target. I'm finally closing with something that we really haven't looked at as much. Everyone's very familiar with the water sewer graph, but we don't look at the power. So this is a, a change that we're trying to rectify. You can see here the orange bars show for Hetch Hetchy power, the average household bill over the next 10 years. And then the purple bars show the discounted bill. We don't have a line like water sewer because again, we're just not quite at the point that we're ready to set targets yet. We need to do more thinking on what this means for our agency. However, we're reporting out on the numbers. So you can see that for that typical 40th percentile household today, they're paying about 0.9% of their household income for their power bill, and that grows to 1.2 over the next 10 years. Finally, here's Clean Power SF. As always, their bills are a little more complicated because, as a reminder, we only control the Clean Power SF generation portion of the bill, whereas PG&E fees and PG&E delivery charges set the remainder. So, that's what you see here with the stack bar chart. That purple slice is the Clean Power SF portion, whereas the blue and orange are what's blended by PG&E or set by PG&E. Um, again, we're not reporting on a specific target. There's a lot of complexity in thinking about how we don't control the bill here for Clean Power SF that we need to think through before we're ready to make that decision. But we do want to forecast what we think customers will pay. And with that, I'm happy to take any questions. Thanks. Great. No, thanks. That is so important and so thorough, and it really fits in with a lot of the policy that we have. And so to put this on the agenda is, is absolutely um, very important. I, I just have one, one question. Um, adopting this, we put the target, and that is going to be the policy, no matter whatever other federal and state laws in terms of blending bills and raising costs and whatever else, this is still going to be a metric that we adopt and we keep into that mix. So when you said, yes, we have a target, it'll be that red line. If for some reason something out of the clear blue in 2029 comes up and it's like we can't meet it, then that comes back to us to say, um, you know, what did you come up with and can we approve it or can we move it? That's, that's the flexibility of this target. Is that kind of in a nutshell? I think you phrased it exactly right. This is our internal target for our own decision-making, much like the level of service goals that the AGMs went through earlier. This is not something imposed in us by outside regulators. They may have their own performance criteria, their own things we require, but we hold ourselves to our own standards, and that's what we're setting here. Great, and I, I think this is absolutely wonderful. Thank you for putting this together, and probably once we move forward with this, uh, we're gonna have some questions, I see, but um, then I hope that, you know, this also, as Commissioner Maxwell said, is something that, you know, people know about it. We're, we are taking these types of income inequality seriously at this agency. So, Commissioner Ajami. 
thank you for that presentation. I have a couple questions for you. One is, you mentioned we have 6,700 water and sewer um, accounts that are delinquent right now for mm -hmm. single-family homes. Can you remind me how many do we have right now? I'm going to get this wrong, but I think it's around 150,000. Okay. I uh, just was trying to kind of in my head to uh, figure yeah. out what the percentage is. Another thing is, um, do we have any sense if uh, that 6,700, they had a break in their system that caused them to actually fall behind payment and then ended up sort of the bills started ballooning and they were not able to pay for it or was this sort of like a gradual problem? Um, mm -hmm. Do you know? Yeah, so obviously every household's experience is different. Um, one of the trends we've seen is that during the pandemic when we had a moratorium on water shutoffs and a lot of people were out of work, they stopped paying their bills um, because they couldn't afford it for whatever reason and then their debt started to balloon. Once you're six months behind on a monthly bill, it's really hard to dig your way out of that. I think if I had to say the biggest trend line, that's, that's what those customers are facing right now. Okay. The reason I ask that is, um, obviously, it is extreme. I mean, you were absolutely point on. Like, a lot of discussions is happening is, and I'm sure you followed some of that in the academic uh, side, mm -hmm. talking about how we can't. We have to move on from the twenty two and a half percent because depending on where you live, the same thing is happening in Chicago, in New York City. These discussions happening across the country in different cities. Mm -hmm. um, so I am. I do appreciate sort of trying to zoom in and try to understand where we fit, where what the percentages needs to be. But at the same time, I want. I think we should also be on the other side be quite. Um, diligent about understanding why these things happen to people and how can we help them to kind of move forward and be able to pay their bill. Even if it's a small amount, it's better if they can gradually pay rather than just things balloon. I'm, I see you want to say something. So I do. Go for it. Yeah. Uh, so it's a combination of what you're saying here and what Aaron said. It is true that we saw the biggest trend line of of arrearages and whatnot because of the pandemic. Sure. And as you recall, we've come here before and told you about progress that we've been making at the state level yes. to advocate to get money provided by the state mm -hmm. to alleviate um, some of the challenges faced by those that were economically distressed as a result of uh, the pandemic. And we have provided a lot of relief mm -hmm. to those individuals. So we are, we are active, we do actively monitor that side as much as we're doing this side. So it's, it's right. very much in our radar screen. So and, I appreciate and the that. other piece was the, the whole, I mean, the biggest trend line before the pandemic in the U.S. has been the, the, the fact that people have leaks and then people have leaks and then they don't know what's going on. They start like not paying or they start seeing these massive bills and they don't know how to pay it and then they add up. Yeah. So the, these used to be another, I mean, this topic used to be another reason. And, and that's why the smart metering is so important because you can, that like, is why like smart we are doing here in San Francisco with every account absolutely. where we can monitor in real time people's water usage and if there is a if there's an issue where we identify someone, oh, you're, you're we can get in contact quickly, with that individual quickly that. Yes. to alleviate and minimize mm -hmm. um, the challenge that they have. So we're on top of it. That's why smart metering is so important and why San Francisco has been at the cutting edge of that. Yeah, absolutely. So that's very important. 
On the power side, so, and I, and I also noticed we obviously, because we don't have submetering, we have hard time to kind of figure out what's going on in individual households when they, we are talking about apartment buildings. Mm -hmm. uh, but on the power side, do we know out of those, I mean, those numbers that you provided about 2,100, do we know what percentage of those are um, apartment buildings, um, uh, people who are residing in apartments versus um, uh, single family homes? Almost all of Hetch Hetchy's uh, residential customer base is apartments and condos. Okay. Almost, I mean, we live in a house and ours is a house. Actually, we are part of that customer. So, um, but, but we are paying, okay, it's very different. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, clean, so clean power yes. stuff, right? But Hetch Hetchy power specifically Got is it. almost all multifamily. That's a very good point. So I was wondering, I, I brought this up last time too. Somehow somebody needs to look into how these single-family homes, sorry, not single-family homes, uh, apartments that have, people have power pay, issues paying their power bills. Mm -hmm. How are they paying um, for their, I don't want to say HOA because not every building has an mm -hmm. HOA, but a lot of those are sort of bundled in into their, um, into their rent. Mm -hmm. So how does that account for? Somehow we need to be able to capture that somewhere too. Yeah, multifamily customers are one of the hardest to tackle. Right. We have so many in San Francisco, and especially on the water sewer side, we often don't have a direct relationship with them or data about them. Right. I agree, it's, it's a big need. So somehow, I mean, I wonder if we can use the power people, mm -hmm. I mean, the power side as a way of trying to identify people if they're having a hard time paying for their power. Mm -hmm. are, there, are there challenges for them for paying other utility bills or if we can provide some relief. Um, again, I know it's complicated. I know yeah. some of it is like bundled up with their rent, but somehow I don't, I don't you know, you're quite creative, so I'm, I'm putting it on you to figure this part out somehow. Yeah, there's, there's a whole team who's been doing work thinking through what we could do for multifamily customers and I, we could definitely reach out to them and see where they're at. Thank you. Thanks for all your hard work, that's wonderful. Commissioner Stacy. Thank you. I, I really just have a comment, and I, I really appreciate the clarity and the focus of this presentation. Thank you. And it really, when we look at the affordability metrics, it, it amplifies so much all of the pieces that the PUC puts together um, in order to uh, maintain our rates within the affordability metric, everything from the projects we choose to pursue when and how we pursue them, uh, all of the financing work that the department does for how we finance to try to keep those costs as low as possible. And, and then I guess on the payment end, when I look at these affordability metrics and the households, it really makes me want to look uh, for ways of supporting those households that simply can't afford even 5% um, of their income to put towards water and sewer. And I know that the PUC is, is legally constrained for how we can set our rates, but I, I'm encouraged by the uh, work that the general manager mentioned and you've mentioned to really try to find state funding, federal grant money, even general fund, if I'm really dreaming big, uh, money to support those uh, low-income families that um, 
a really struggle because mm -hmm. it is, uh, it's really, it's hard to see these numbers and, and not really sympathize with how difficult it is. But I also want to appreciate the work that the PUC does every step of the way to try to maintain that affordability. And it's incumbent on the commission as well to always keep that in mind. But uh, thank you for this presentation. All right, thank you. Um, Commissioner Jami. Um, one other thing I wanna actually task you with is, um, you know, if, if we, our water use goes down further, we will have a very different revenue projection than we have right now, right? And that is going to impact our rates very differently. So um, I wonder if you can somehow run a scenario under that situation as well that says, you know, how, will, how are we going to balance our sheet when it comes to paying off our debt, um, recovering our, maintaining our system, operating on the highest quality, and at the same time dealing with the change in revenue and meeting affordability. I think these are all sort of coming at the same time, so it's important to think about that a little bit more. So, you know, it's, um, I appreciate everything that's done here, but I think this is another thing to think about as you're sort of working with these numbers. Okay, any other comments? Thank you again for that uh, great presentation. So let's open this up to public comment. Do we have members of the public present to provide comment on item 12? I see none, but I would like to note that we did receive one written public comment, which was provided to the commission and will be included with the minutes. Great, thank you. So is there a motion to um, adopt these affordability metrics? Item 12. Move to approve. I'll second. There's a motion and a second. Roll call, please. President Paulson. Aye. Commissioner Maxwell. Commissioner Jami? Aye. Commissioner Stacy? Aye. You have four ayes. Those metrics are now policy. Um, item 13, could you read that, please? Item 13 authorized a general manager to execute a memorandum of understanding between the San Francisco Airport Commission and the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission in an amount not to exceed $50 million, with the term starting December 4, 2023 through December 21. December 31, 2028, for the airport to, pro to procure and manage project management support services and design build services to replace two existing airport substation transformers with three new 55 MVA transformers and other supporting electrical systems, and for the SFPUC to reimburse the airport for the cost. Okay, who's going to be presenting? Barbara Hale, Assistant okay. General Manager for Power. The Commission Secretary's description was quite comprehensive. Uh, the airport is one of our largest customers. Their load is growing. The two existing substations need to be improved to meet that need. We are uh, proposing before you a memorandum of understanding where they would manage that project. We would reimburse them. Of course, those costs would be incorporated in our rates and we'd recover the costs over time that we incur. Uh, and with that, I'm happy to answer any questions you may have. That was simple. Are there any questions from commissioners? Our big airport. Thank you. Thank you, um, Ms. Hale. Um, no comments, so let's put this out to public comment, please. Do we have any members of the public present to provide comment? Uh, I am 13. And I see nobody uh, coming to the microphone. So um, I'll entertain a motion to adopt this um, 
this authorization to execute the uh, the uh, contract. I'll move to go, go for it. Motion and seconded. I think I heard uh, squeezing in there. <laughs> um, item 13. There's a motion and a second. Let's have a roll call, please. President Paulson. Aye. Commissioner Maxwell. Aye. Commissioner Jami. Aye. Commissioner Stacy. Aye. You have four ayes. Okay. Um, communications. Um, is there anything in communications that needs uh, to be pointed out by anybody? Um, we have all seen. And so we will move on to item 15. Are there any items that uh, the commissioners would like to um, initiate or discuss or talk about for future discussions? Is there anything that any of my colleagues have? I see none. So therefore, um, let us read. Um, we will, I guess we will adjourn or we will be moving into closed session. That's the last um, item. Actually, I need to read the item and call for public comment. So we're going to go um, into closed session, but we'll read the item. Secretary, can you do that, please, Donna? Uh, yes. Item 18, um, Conference with Legal Counsel, Shelley Nguyen et al. versus City and County of San Francisco, proposed settlement of existing litigation resulting from a vehicle collision with the City and County of San Francisco to pay Shelley Nguyen $35,000 in exchange for full and final release, subject to final approval by the Board of Supervisors. Do we have any members of the public present to provide comment on closed session item 18? And I see none. So um, let's entertain a motion as to whether or not to assert the attorney-client privilege. Is there a motion? Move to assert. I'll second. We have a roll call on motion to assert. President Paulson? Aye. Commissioner Maxwell? Commissioner Jami? Aye. Commissioner Stacy? Aye. You have four ayes. Okay, we will go into closed session. TV, San Francisco Government Television.
Uh, you'll let us know. Okay, so we are now back in open session. Um, we are back from closed section, and the uh, commission is recommending that the board approve the settlement that is referenced in item 18. Um, so is there a motion uh, regarding whether or not to disclose the discussions during closed section? Move not, to, not dis to disclose. Move not to disclose. I'll second. Uh, motion and second. Can we have the roll call, please? President Paulson? Aye. Commissioner Maxwell? Aye. Commissioner Jami? Aye. Commissioner Stacy? Aye. You have four ayes. Okay. Um, so there is no further business agendized, so we are now in adjournment. Thank you, Commissioners. Thank you. Full. Yes, it's great. Kind of metrics and plans and goals.